The great thing about implementation science is that it, it's effective and it, it's also very ethical and it's effective because it really takes account of the, the well-being agency and autonomy of people. And I think it just provides such such a great framework. For me, it just changed my practice overnight because there was no way I could ever lead a change in a school again without undertaking that kind of vertical slice and that set of data gathering. And yeah, it was just such a light bulb moment and, and quite amazing to have your practice changed so fundamentally by, by an activity. You know, in 18 years of education, I've never seen so much bad practice come out of people taking an idea and, and thinking they're doing the right thing. So, so I think that there is a, a sort of moral imperative as a leader to, to make sure that you're skilled in the way you embed change in schools and, and to make sure that the well-being of, of your staff doesn't suffer because of badly implemented change and, and to make sure really that that your, your students, which is, you know, your purpose, are, are benefiting from things that things being the best they can be for them. It was the simplicity of this tool in particular that makes you wonder why it's, you know, it's not something that's used in schools all the time. And it really should be. And it's something I will, you know, definitely be using in schools in my work from now on you almost sort of open the pandora's box and you think okay well i can never i can never go back from this now because i've, I've seen just how important this is and i think there's also a lesson in there about ethical leadership um as as well and how it's really important to make sure that, that people's voices are valued and unheard and that they're not the product of, of groupthink because, you know, it's really important that we challenge any sort of bias in school thinking. So I so I really do think it's, yeah, vital part of, of leadership. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello folks, before we get into today's episode, a quick notice about the forthcoming Rethinking Education conference, if I may. It's at Addie and Stanhope School in London on Saturday the 17th of September, and there's also a strong online element to the conference, so no excuses wherever you are in the universe. It really promises to be quite a day to remember. If you want some more information, check out the trailers and the flyer and the information linked in the show notes. The early bird ticket deal offers you a 20% discount and that's running till Sunday the 17th of July. So that gives you 20% off and we're offering a further 20% discount for friends of the podcast if you enter the promo code REPOD20, all lowercase, at the checkout you'll receive in total an £18 discount from the full price of 50 of your English pounds. All proceeds will be donated to educational charities. There's also a quota of free places for young people and for parents and carers. We really don't want money to be an obstacle to people attending what promises to be a really quite special event, which will include a moonwalking workshop run by Lox, a 10-year-old homeschooled child. There's a limited number of places available, so if you want to secure your place, I recommend you do so soon. There are links to the ticket page in the show notes. Thank you for your attention. Hello, my beautiful friends and indeed relatives descended as we all are from the primeval soup. 
Welcome to episode 39 of the Rethinking Education podcast, one for every step. Regular listeners may have noticed that the introduction to this episode was slightly longer than usual. That's because there were so many juicy quotes in this episode that I couldn't possibly pick a favourite. This is a big one for me, folks. I'm not sure that I can adequately express in words how excited I am to share this episode of the podcast with you all. It's been a really long time in the planning, so long in fact that I recorded this interview with Kate and Elaine, who I'll introduce in a few moments, more than a year ago. To explain why this episode has taken so long to come to fruition, and why I get quite so animated about implementation science, allow me to take you back to the beginning. Eight years ago, I attended a conference called Implementing Implementation Science at the University of Cambridge. I won't go into it in great detail now because we'll talk about it later in this episode, but long story short, this conference absolutely blew my mind and fundamentally changed the way I think about school improvement and indeed how we might transform society, a topic that we'll have to save for a future episode. In case you haven't heard of implementation science before, it's a relatively new field of study that's emerged in the last 15 years or so, and mainly it's a healthcare discipline really, and it's essentially the study of how to bring about lasting, positive change in real-world contexts. So as I say, this implementation science conference blew me away. I could immediately see the incredible power of implementation science to change the way we think about school leadership and school improvement, and I was really keen to throw myself into it with everything I could muster. But at the time, I was halfway through an eight-year PhD, and then I co-authored a book about that PhD, Fear is the Mind Killer, which took absolutely ages, but I quietly vowed to myself that as soon as that book was written, I would turn my attention to implementation science more fully. And that, my friends, is precisely what I did. Three years ago, I created an implementation science toolkit for schools, which we piloted at a school called UCL Academy in North London in a programme that was spread over four half-day sessions. I co-facilitated these sessions with Mark Quinn, my brilliant erstwhile colleague at the UCL Institute of Education, and we thought that they'd gone well, but we didn't honestly think a great deal about it. And then we did a follow-up visit to the school a year later, and what we heard was absolutely unbelievable and convinced me that we might just be onto something big here. To get a sense of the scale of the impact that this could have on people's lives all over the world, I'd like to share with you a quick back-of-the-envelope calculation. And to set the scene, I'd like to ask you a question that I've now asked to hundreds of teachers and school leaders all over the world. The question is simply this. What proportion of school improvement initiatives would you say lead to improved pupil outcomes? It's a really interesting question to ask this. It's simple enough, but some people find it quite provocative. Whenever I ask people this question, firstly, I often notice some interesting non-verbal responses. People roll their eyes, they suck in air through their teeth, they make strange facial expressions, and then, with remarkable consistency, they come out with a figure in the region of 10-20%. to 20%. Not always, but nearly always. Perhaps you work in a really well-run school and you came up with a figure higher than this, but whatever figure you came up with, we're now going to tighten the criteria a little. Looking back over your career, assuming that you're a school-based person, what proportion of school improvement initiatives would you say led to 
demonstrable gains in pupil outcomes for which you have compelling evidence of causation so that you're confident that it was a particular school improvement initiative that caused those improved outcomes and those improvements were sustained over several years. So those are your three criteria, demonstrable gains, evidence of causation and sustained over time. Again, you may be lucky enough to work in a setting where the answer to this question remains quite high, but in my experience, and as I say, I've now asked this question to hundreds of teachers and school leaders all over the world. At this point, people most often revise their figure down to zero, or they point to maybe one or two examples of effective practice, but then say something like, actually, on reflection, we don't really have compelling evidence. We just think it's effective. Now, this isn't to say that teachers and school leaders don't make a difference. We make a difference every single day just by turning up. But we're talking here about implementing change at a system level to bring about permanent gains for future cohorts. In a sense, it's not particularly surprising that the success rate of school improvement initiatives should be so low. As anyone who's ever tried to implement a New Year's resolution will tell you, bringing about lasting positive change is a lot easier said than it's done. Whenever people try to implement change in their lives, to read more novels, say, or to exercise more, or to eat more healthily, or whatever it might be, it's fairly easy to keep it going for a week or two. But if you fast forward a few more weeks, it's quite likely that that person will have reverted to type. To illustrate, a recent study of over 800 million activities by the exercise app Strava found that, on average, people give up on their New Year's resolution on January the 19th. They call it Quitter's Day. This isn't to say that bringing about lasting positive change in our lives is impossible. Far from it. There are many examples of it. It's just that there are many more examples of change initiatives that fail to meet their stated aims. If it's difficult to bring about lasting positive change in our own lives, then doing so in a large, complex, ever-changing organisation like a school is a lot, lot harder. The scale of this problem was powerfully expressed by Professor Anthony Brake, a world-renowned expert in school improvement, who wrote, By definition, improvement requires change. Unfortunately, he says, in education, change too often fails to bring improvement, even when smart people are working on the right problems and drawing on cutting-edge ideas. Believing in the power of some new reform proposal and propelled by a sense of urgency, Educational leaders often plunge headlong into large-scale implementation. Invariably, outcomes fall far short of expectations. Enthusiasm wanes, and the field moves on to the next idea without ever really understanding why the last one failed. Such is the pattern of change in public education. Implement fast, learn slow, and burn goodwill as you go. Close quote. I'm sure that many listeners who've worked in schools will recognise that picture. This phenomenon, whereby schools churn through this endless stream of change initiatives that fail to deliver, leads to a condition that goes by many names, initiativitis, innovation fatigue, or fad-teague, or this too shall pass syndrome. There's this phrase that teachers often mutter under their breaths as the latest change initiative is announced. This too shall pass. Initiativitis is incredibly corrosive. It makes people very sceptical and increasingly cynical about the idea that lasting, positive change is even possible. 
So I want to be really clear at the outset of this whole conversation that the scale of the challenge before us is really significant and should not be underestimated. Put simply, bringing about lasting positive change in a large complex organisation like a school or indeed other organisations, let alone a society, is no picnic. So let's take a moment to do this quick back of the envelope calculation to get a sense of the scale of the problem. Say the average change initiative in a school requires each person to spend 10 hours across a school year to attend some training, to do something different and to record their activity in some way. And to keep the maths nice and simple for now, let's say that there's an average of 100 practitioners in a school, teachers, leaders, support staff. So that gives us a figure of 1,000 hours spent on each change initiative per year. There's about 30,000 schools in the UK. So that means that as a nation, we spend around 30 million hours a year implementing change initiatives, assuming a rate of one change initiative per school, which is definitely a conservative estimate. If we assume a 20% success rate, which seems like it might be generous, that means that every year in the UK, we spend around 24 million hours implementing school improvement initiatives that don't actually improve anything. And to take this to a global level, it's estimated that there's around 5 million schools on the planet in total. This gives us a ballpark figure of 5 billion hours spent implementing change each year. Again, if we assume a 20% success rate, this means that every year on this planet, we spend roughly 4 billion hours implementing school improvement initiatives that don't actually improve anything. And as I say, this is probably a conservative estimate because it assumes that there's only one change initiative happening at any one time in each school. And usually there's several things going on at once and many of them take up many more than 10 hours across an entire school year. In short, the scale of ineffective change management happening across the planet is absolutely staggering. The vast majority of change initiatives are good ideas, right? And they've often got worthy goals in mind. They might be trying to improve reading scores or to close the disadvantage gap or to improve mental health and well-being among teachers and young people. It's just that they're often implemented poorly and they don't bring about the results that we want to see. Just imagine if people in every one of those schools knew how to implement change effectively in such a way that the vast majority of change initiatives do bring about lasting positive change in terms of improving outcomes for teachers and support staff and for young people in their families. Imagine if we could get that success rate close to 80% or 50% or even just up to 30%. Think of the gains that we could see in terms of improving those reading scores or closing that disadvantage gap or improving mental health and well-being or whatever it is that you're trying to do. The list goes on. I think that here we can see a really powerful rationale for implementation science. This back of the envelope calculation is obviously a very rough estimate, but it gives us a real sense of the scale of the problem before us and also the scale of the potential impact that we could have on people's lives all over the world if we can figure out how to implement change effectively at a system level. In today's episode of the podcast, I'll be speaking with Kate Barry and Elaine Long, two former school leaders at UCL Academy in North London about their experience of the pilot study that I mentioned earlier and the ways in which the Implementation Science for Schools programme, hereafter the ISS programme, has impacted upon their thinking and their practice since then. Since I recorded this episode with Kate and Elaine, I've now shared these ideas with hundreds more schools 
all over the world. And honestly, the feedback continues to be unbelievable. To share just three examples of comments made by teachers who've worked their way through this ISS toolkit recently, Elaine Long, who we're going to hear more from today in an early interview that I did with her, said, the implementation science program has been the making of me as a leader. It's something that I now take with me and apply to everything that I do. Al Kennedy, a head teacher whose school I've worked with for the last few years, said, the senior team and I are really energized and much more confident about what we can do differently now as a school. This training is so valuable because it's something that we're doing all the time and we've never really been trained in it. Close quote. And that's something that I've really noticed as somebody who's part of my job recently was to deliver the MPQs, the national professional qualifications that school leaders do. And there's a bit of stuff in there on change management, but it's clearly not enough, as we've already seen. And one more quote from a deputy head teacher called Sarah Ward, who said, I really wish that I'd done this training before I embarked on my current project. At the time, she was working on an initiative around diversity and inclusion. Goodness me, she said, I would be doing things differently if I had had this training first. Close quote. This is something that almost everybody who completes this training says, I wish I'd known this years ago. The schools that I work with are often working on a really diverse range of school improvement initiatives, but in terms of the input that I give whenever I deliver this training, I basically say the same stuff. It's generic stuff that we then apply to different contexts. And so in an attempt to get out of the way and to scale these practices up far and wide, I've now made an online version of the ISS program. And to cut a very long story short, the reason that this episode has taken so long to come to fruition is that it takes a really long time to make an online course of this nature, especially a substantial course like this one. And it is fairly substantial. There are four elements to this course. First of all, there's 23 videos that range roughly from three minutes to, to about 20 minutes long, the longest one. As we'll talk about later in this episode, in the pilot study, there were 10 tools in this toolkit. When we recorded this episode a year ago, there were 18 and there are now 23. Later in this episode, you'll hear me estimate that it will take two to three hours to watch all the videos. It now comes in at around four and a half hours of viewing time across these 23 episodes. The second thing is that there's a playbook that you work through as you go through this program. There's 180 pages in this playbook, but don't be daunted by how long it is. It's mainly just uh, screen grabs of the slides from the videos so that you don't have to write down copious notes as you're going through the program. And in each chapter, there's an activity to help you to apply these ideas to your particular context. The third thing is that there's an ISS planning template, a 30-page planning template for how to bring about school improvement. And then the fourth element is that there's an online community that sits around this so that we can share ideas with one another and support one another and be sort of like supportive accountability partners to one another. Because that's something that I've really noticed from running these MPQ programs. Lots of the value that comes from those programs is where people are connecting with other people in different schools and sharing their parallel journeys, if you like. But those training programs are often one year long. And when that program ends, those relationships tend to collapse behind them. And so that's not going to happen. It's always going to be free to be a member of this online community. And there's a free taster course that goes with it. And then if schools want to subscribe to the materials, they can do so for a year at a time so they can have a deep dive and really train up a bunch of people in their school around how to implement a particular school improvements initiative in a really robust way. So anyway, this course launched last weekend, thank goodness. 
And the first few people are starting to trickle into this community, which is insanely exciting after all this time. If you work in a school and you're interested in doing this full version, we're currently looking for 50 early adopter schools to pilot these materials and to get some feedback from people. This is a paid thing and we operate a sliding scale of fees according to how big your school is. If you're interested in becoming one of these early adopter schools and you want to find out more, check out the links in the show notes. And as I say, there's also a free taster course so that anybody can join this community and sign up to this taster course so that you can get a sense of what's in the full fat version. Okay, without further ado, I will now hand over to what I really think is just the most incredible conversation with Kate Barry and Elaine Long. I hope you enjoy this show and that this goes some way to making you as interested in implementation science as I am. Kate Barry and Elaine Long, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. It's really nice to be here. Really nice to have you both. This is the first time that I have had two guests on simultaneously. Um, So I'm interested to see how this works. And because of that, we're going to have a slightly different format to the to the usual setup of these conversations, which we'll explain as we go through. Um, But as a way to introduce people uh, to yourselves, could could we start with you, Kate, and then Elaine, just to give a very quick sort of introduction to yourself and your current role and your uh, career to date? Uh, yeah, my name's Kate Barry, and I've been teaching for about 17 years now, um, both in London schools, in Camden schools in London, and internationally. And uh, most recently, I, I returned from teaching in in Brisbane, in Australia, in 2012, um, to become a founding member of UCL Academy, uh, the school set up by UCL. Um, I'm in my ninth year there now, and my role as assistant principal. Um, focused on curriculum and leadership development and I'm based there three days a week and I spend two days working on some other education projects predominantly at Camden Learning um, looking at um, STEAM curriculum and leadership development in Camden. Brilliant thank you and Elaine. Um, I'm very similar um, to Kate, actually, which is probably why we get on so well, Kate. But (laughs) I've been a teacher for 18 years, so just one more year than you, which probably explains my wrinkles. Like you, I've taught in England and internationally as well in China and Hong Kong. And I returned to the UK two years later than you, but also joined UCL Academy. And I'm now an assistant principal there for teaching and learning. And I've got a particular passion around the way we can translate messages from research into classroom practice, which is currently what I'm really interested in. Fantastic. Thank you. So listeners to this podcast will will be aware by now that I have a sort of an interest and bordering on an obsession with implementation science, um, which just it continues and, and uh, to to grip me. And I'm currently in the process of of writing a book and making a course. And this is this is largely how I came to know you is through an implementation science program which we ran at UCL Academy. And so we're going to spend the first part of this conversation getting into this 
this and we, we recently as you remember we recently did a did a session for the schools and academies show where we had a similar conversation but it was sort of about 30 or 40 minutes and in this conversation we can take our time and really get into the detail of what happened at UCL Academy and uh, and since we ran that pilot study with regard to implementation because there's such a lot of fascinating stuff to talk about so I think I'll begin if I may by just explaining a little bit about my own entry into this world of implementation science and and how I sort of came to to be involved so deeply in this work so it started for me around about seven years ago when I went to a conference at my university called implementing implementation science and looking back, I honestly can't remember why I went to this thing. I didn't know what implementation science was at the time. And I'm pretty sure that I was just there on that day and I just sort of had a bit of time to spare and I sort of stuck my head in the door. Um, and I'm really glad that I did. Um, so the, the, the keynote speaker that day was someone called Dr. Barbara Kelly, who's based up at Strathclyde University. And she said at the start of her keynote that implementation science, which is a, a new field of study that's just emerged in the last 15 years or so, is remarkable for two reasons. Firstly, because everybody needs it. And secondly, because nobody's heard of it. And so she, she sort of had my attention from the outset, really. And she said a few things that day that really resonated with me. But one of them was the practitioner is the intervention. And at the time, so that in 2014, I was halfway through my PhD um, study, which was an eight-year evaluation of, of what started out life as a, as a taught learning-to-learn curriculum at Key Stage 3. It started out as just a taught Year 7 thing. But then over, over time, it sort of developed into what essentially became a whole school approach to teaching and learning. And in around 2014, we were in this process of transitioning and thinking about how can we make this much more of a joined up effort across the piece. So scaling up and implementation were very much on my mind at the time. And I think that I was thinking of this essentially as a conceptual problem. I was thinking about the, the concepts that underpin learning to learn, things like metacognition and oracy and self-regulation. And I was thinking we need to sort of explain what these words mean and what these ideas look like in the classroom to our colleagues across the school and to the young people themselves and, you know, try to spread these ideas and practices far and wide. And what Barbara helped me realise that day is that implementation is not a conceptual problem, really. It's a people problem. And so rather than thinking about this on a conceptual basis, what I really need to think about was things like, who are my colleagues? How ready for change are they? What are their values? Do they buy into this learning to learn sort of way of seeing things? Or is there any resistance to this and so on? And who can we work with to, to, to get started? How can we build a sort of a coalition of the willing, if you like, so that we can spread these ideas and multiply our efforts throughout the school and so it really it really resonated with me and I, I remember writing about it at the time because people were talking a lot about research at the time and the research ed conferences that had just sort of sprung up and people were talking a lot about research literacy among the teaching profession as though you know the answer to this question of how do we become more evidence-based is for teachers to somehow do lots more homework and lots more reading and read all of this education literature and then we'll sort of you know we'll bridge the gap in that way um, and it seems to me that that actually implementation is far more important you know research is definitely useful and we should draw on research as far as we can but research doesn't really tell us very much about how to implement these things in new and different and diverse ecologies because you know no two schools are perfectly alike 
and and lots of this work as barbara kelly spoke about it barbara is a psychologist and she was she was very concerned with she, she wrote in in the handbook of implementation science for psychology and education about how this field of implementation science has come out of the study of failure essentially that they've looked at a whole bunch of ways in which you know ideas and practices that have been developed in the literature have failed to be replicated elsewhere and the replication crisis is a huge problem that's um you know not just um something that's relevant to psychology but in science more generally and so um it was on my mind for a long time and and this thinking was very helpful in my own uh, in my own PhD, so we went on to implement the, this this approach in a whole school way, and it had an amazing impact. Those young people went on to achieve the best set of results that that school had ever seen by some margin. And in particular, it was beneficial for young people from disadvantaged backgrounds, so the gap closed from the bottom up almost completely, which was amazing. And so as soon as my PhD was done, I was like, I really want to focus now on you know, um, on doing something with regard to implementation science. Um, and so we put this program together, which we piloted at your school. Um, and and we've had some quite incredible um, developments and, and outcomes of that, which um, I'm really keen to get into. So let's start with your own sort of memories of that, of that pilot study. Um, we'll start with you, Kate, and then Elaine. What are your sort of memories of this, the start of this project and, and how you started to engage with these ideas? Well, I remember, James, you, you emailed me about the work you were doing around implementation science and I think you sent me sort of this one page summary and it and it showed the impact that implementation science had been having in in healthcare and um, you know how slow um, new practice was to kind of become common in in healthcare and how implementation science had, had drastically improved that and I just found it completely compelling <laughs> that the statistics you sent were really you know um, you know, really hooked me in. I, I had completed my master's in educational leadership and, and I'd never come, come across implementation science. Um, and it really just resonated with me, the fact that, you know, we know research, um, research informed policies that have been successful at one school just don't port and into another necessarily. And this kind of process, you know, talk to that and talk to the fact that you can take a school's context into the planning to make sure it is more successful um, and so I was really really keen to take part um, I know my kind of initial role in the pilot was um, to identify the policy that we would want to implement as a school and that this could either be a brand new policy or one that was having a significant change um, at the time and um, and then once we would do that, that to assemble this kind of vertical slice or a team that would become the implementation team in the school. Um, and I knew Elaine was working on a new teaching and learning policy. And um, and I was just so delighted that she was um, willing for it to be used in this pilot. 
Mm, thank you. Um, and so because before I come on to you, Elaine, just to explain a couple of bits for the benefit of listeners. So this, the, the, firstly, the statistics that you mentioned from healthcare and then this idea of a vertical slice team, which is so integral to this approach to change management. So in, in, in implementation science, this, is, this has been established, as I say, for about 15 years, and it's more established in the field of healthcare. The, the, the implementation science journal is essentially a healthcare journal. Um, and they found that what, researchers were interested in to what extent are, are evidence-informed, what are considered to be sort of gold standard practices, actually used out in the out in the field. And they found that looking at a whole range of different measures, um, di- di- sorry, different areas of, of medicine and healthcare, they found that on average it takes around 17 years for a piece of gold standard evidence-informed practice to achieve 14% coverage, 1-4% coverage across the healthcare system as a whole, which I think is probably the statistic that you were talking about, Kate, which you're like, well, that's like jaw-dropping, you know, that's really not good. They're not good numbers. And so so researchers were thinking, how can we fix this problem? And they, they realised that largely it was a communication problem. And if you think about, you know, taking a slice through the healthcare system, you've got people at the, at the federal level in the, in the United States, this work was done. So, you know, the government level, then you've got state level administrators and civil servants, and then you've got hospital managers, doctors at a whole bunch of different levels, nurses at a whole bunch of different levels, ancillary staff and so on. So you've got lots of people who are affected by some sort of change that people are suggesting should happen. And so they thought, well, maybe we should have a vertical slice so we get people who are looking at, they're all sitting around a table looking at this problem from multiple perspectives. And they found that when you use these implementation teams, you can achieve 80% coverage within three years, which is incredible. And I'll, I'll include um, some, some notes in the, in the show notes where people can follow up these references. It's a little bit complicated, that finding. It's not a neat, easy finding to follow, but it does stand up. Um, and so that um that was the central idea that i wanted to import into schools and so we in a school we would put a team together where you have senior leaders middle leaders early career teachers teaching assistants the senko again you know whoever it may be students or parents depending on what it is that you're implementing um, so that you're looking at this problem through multiple perspectives and what's really important is that you sort of have to devolve a certain amount of the decision making to that team so it's not it's not like an anti leadership thing leadership is a very important aspect of this process but because it's not bottom up change either it's sort of like simultaneously looking at change from multiple levels at the same time so that's probably the the main sort of idea although there's a whole but we put together this whole toolkit of ideas which we'll get into later um but the, the idea is that you, you assemble this vertical slice team and then you work through this toolkit together to write and then to execute over time a really comprehensive uh implementation plan so yes let's go back to the policy that you were that you were describing at the time at the at the time there had been a book that had just been published hadn't there the checklist manifesto and everybody was very keen on these idea this idea of checklists so i'll hand over to you elaine at this point uh, can you talk about the, what the initial idea was and, and and your initial engagement with this implementation science program yeah, so I was the person that fell victim to Kate's persuasive <laughs> charms to get involved in this. And I was quite new to the role of assistant principal of teaching and learning. And I was very lucky to have inherited a, a really research-informed model of teaching and learning. But what we were finding was that as the school had grown, 
from a startup school, we, we felt that some of the vision around teaching and learning was being applied less and less consistently. So we wanted a tool that would ensure that students were benefiting constantly from a really good diet of teaching and learning. And we thought, well, you know, teachers have lots of, of complex decisions to make every day in the classroom. So we looked at the research around checklists that was, was coming from the medical world as well. And we thought, okay, well, we'll put together a checklist to help teachers in the classroom so they can tick off what they need to do um, in the classroom and and that's where we started from and um, our ideas about that changed really radically when we took feedback from the vertical slice and, and I think that's the first thing the policy that we ended up with was so much better than our original idea and, and what came back from the vertical slice when they went into their different department areas to discuss whether this would be an effective change this, it was that people very much felt like it, it wouldn't because it was very hierarchical, it felt very judgmental, and people were very resistant to this idea that you can reduce pedagogy to a checklist that everyone should tick off um, in, in one lesson. So that was a really good lesson to learn and a really good starting point that, that in fact we'd got it wrong and, and that wasn't the right move to make so we we worked collaboratively together on something different and what we actually came up with was something called a reflection tool which is at the, the heart of our shared language around teaching and learning now which looks at a, a range of different habits that we want teachers to embed in their classrooms over time but there's there's no remit around when they use them or how regularly they use them, but but just that they have the autonomy to, to apply them um, as and when they need. And that, that reflection tool actually informs our CPL programme and our appraisal programme, and, and then it's linked to everything we do. So we have a, a common language. Mm. Just, to, just to clarify, is this CPL, is that continuous professional learning? <laughs> Yeah, that's right. CPD, or yes. we call it CPL because yes. the emphasis on learning. But yeah, CPD. Okay, thank you. So, just to explain for the benefit of listeners, the, the, this this uh, this activity that you're describing, one of the first things that we do when we assemble this vertical slice team, first of all, we establish a set of ground rules, right? So it's like um, this this is how this team is going to work, and it's different to how people generally work in schools. So one of the ground rules is everybody's an equal around this table, and although the although the name vertical slice team and you know, first of all some, some people don't like this phrase vertical slice team i know our, our friend mark quinn um took this out and he mentioned it i think he was working in another part of the world i think he might have been in asia somewhere and in places where, where people have different cultural values they were like really allergic to the word vertical at all because it implied this hierarchy and so pe some people prefer cross-sectional slice or whatever which is fine um and so Although, although the name vertical slice implies that there is a hierarchy, and of course there is within a school, around this table everybody's voice is equally respected and equally valued. And one of the things that we set up early on is that you, we have to have really robust conversations. Because sometimes, you know, if, if, you're, if your line manager or a senior leader or the head teacher rolls out a policy, um, you know, occasionally you get people who will stick their hand up and say, oh, I don't think that's a good idea. But that's generally seen as like really socially awkward. You're like, oh my God. I can't believe that person's doing that. Just put your hand down. And, you know, it's, 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 meetings and, and sort of gatherings of teachers aren't often set up in such a way that we can have these equitable, robust 
conversations. And so another ground rule is we need to share all relevant information, especially inconvenient information, because we know from the you know research from Irving Janis and others in, going back to the 60s and 70s that when you have lots of like-minded people sitting around a table, you get really bad decision-making because of this phenomenon of groupthink. And so you want to break that down. And so you have these ground rules where you say, we're going to have these robust conversations where we would have you know the the the, the right to have our to have our voices heard without fear of repercussion um, and also be prepared to have our own views challenged where appropriate. And I do remember early on that we had some fascinating, sort of interesting, like you say, robust conversations. And so one of the first activities that we do is this data collection exercise where each member of the Vertical Slice team goes away and has conversations with other members of, of the school. So the teaching assistant goes and talks to other TAs and, you know, the SENCO talks to other people in the in the special needs department and, um, you know, middle leaders talk to other middle leaders or maybe they talk to their own department. Senior leaders, the same. And because and they ask questions like, you know, do you think this is a good idea? Is this a good thing for us to be focusing on as a school at this time? Um, what concerns do you have? What questions do you have? What ideas do you have? And so on. And then they bring that information back to the team and they share that. And I remember at the time, Kate, you said that this was very sort of eye-opening for you as a leader and that you really felt like you knew what the school was thinking. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we might have guessed where we would have had pockets of support for this policy where we thought there was you know people that identified the need for it and actually what came back from that vertical slice data was absolutely eye-opening to me there was complete opposites in places people who were really supportive for this policy and wanting to kind of improve the consistency of teaching and learning from areas we didn't expect there were areas of concern where we didn't expect and it just what it showed me was that you couldn't have guessed what people were thinking and how it was going to be received and if you hadn't undertaken this really simple task of having these series of conversations which really didn't take us long I mean this was I think the the end of our first session and we each went out and conducted these in, these sort of series of interviews or informal conversations, um, which, you know, which maybe a handful of them each. Um, but bringing them back, we had a huge amount of data and the data wasn't what I had predicted, wasn't perhaps what any of us had predicted. And it just showed me that it can be quite a simple, a really cheap, there was no cost involved, um, kind of activity to complete in a school. And yet it was it was it was fundamental for this policy being successful. And for me, it just changed my practice overnight because there was no way I could ever lead a change in a school again without undertaking that kind of vertical slice and that set of data gathering. And yeah, it was just such a light bulb moment and and quite amazing to have your practice changed so fundamentally by by an activity. Mm, that's fascinating. Thank you. And so this the idea of the vertical slice team, it sort of operates in two ways. One is that, that it's, it's, so it's in, rather than taking the decision making from a black box, which is often what like a senior leadership team meeting is, right? Like people can't see what's going on in there. We're, we're using it to a, to a more of sort of like a glass box analogy where people can see what's going on and it works in two ways. So like you say, with the data collection exercise, we can see out and we can get a real strong sense of what people are thinking out in the school. But equally, the school, stakeholders throughout the school know that this vertical slice team is happening and that they are represented on that team and that they have somebody that they can go and talk to if they want to ask questions or share ideas, say. Um, 
Um, and so it is a it is a, a fascinating idea, this vertical slice one. And I know that you you know you've used this idea. Um, you know, a few times since then, and we'll get into that later on. Um, but let's go back to this 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 uh, reflection tool first of all. So, so, so you were saying that so quite early on, Elaine, um, your thinking changed from away from this being a checklist to being something that was less sort of judgmental and more sort of inclusive, and and something that was going to engage people. And as I understand it, this is this is you know remains at the beating heart of of conversations around around teaching and learning at the school and and did do even throughout the period of school closures yeah that's right um there have been times when we've kind of had to zoom in or zoom out on it there have been times with remote learning where we've just focused on a particular aspect of it and as we move forward in, into kind of year three of it I want to make it much looser and give people much more freedom about how they use it um, for their own development but but the language around it remains the same and it's very much a kind of live document as well one of the things we talked about during remote learning was you know that the principles will remain the same but some of the tools we use or, or some of the the methods in those boxes may change a bit so it so it has adapted over time and it, it has been a, a live document as such and we have zoomed in and out of bits of it as as we've needed but but the principles have remained solid um and the same and it, it's it's just been really useful I think as well for informing the way that I go about CPL planning and for evaluation and, and monitoring as well, informing that and taking different aspects and looking at how they're embedding across the whole school or within different faculty areas. Mm, thank you. So we'll we'll come on to that later. I think about the way in which these ideas have have been used uh, by yourselves and also by your colleagues across the school um, since then. But just to give people a flavour, so so in that initial version, we had we had ten sort of tools in the toolkit, and I've since expanded this um, into a, into a toolkit, which I know you've seen the latest version, which I'm going to launch soon uh, as an online course, so that we can scale up this work. Because you know, since I, since we ran this pilot study I've run this training and with, with about 30 ish schools all over the world on about five different continents mostly remotely um, and the feedback has been absolutely phenomenal like it's like at UCL we're used to getting good feedback on the programs that we run um, but I've never seen anything like this and it seemed like I remember at some point you said Elaine that this had this had been the making of you as a leader and that it changed can you can you explain a little bit about that yeah, I, th I think for me, going back to the, the vertical slice, I think so often as, as a leader, you tend to oversimplify the problem. So you don't really um, you don't really get off the block because you're oversimplifying the problem. And, and, and so I think all problems in a school should, you know, have a collective voice around them. And, and that's very important. And I think that's what the vertical slice did. And, and I think that's really important for me. I think there are two ingredients in that that are really important for leadership. And, and one is trust. I think you, you mentioned sort of 
you know, in a more traditional model of leadership, that that sort of black box where decisions are made where people can't see in. Well, I think that erodes trust because if you make decisions that are not in tune with, you know, how your staff body are thinking and feeling about things and it looks like you're out of touch and they're not going to work. And and I think the second is relationships are, are really important for change and they're really important for leadership and they're, and they're so often overlooked. But, but I think they're everything really because the implementation is the people and you know one of the other things about the implementation science project that we did was it also really improved relationships and I had one or two members of the group come up to me and say oh you know I've been really down about things but actually this is this is really inspiring me being involved in this because you know I, I realized that I can affect change and in the school body and I think that sense of collective efficacy um is is really huge and incredibly important so i suppose for me as as a, as a leader it really made me realize the importance of those things and i always knew those things were important and it was always instinctively the way i would want to lead but but i suppose through doing the project it, it really made them very very clear to me and i i think prior to doing the implementation project I would have said yeah well of, of course I consult people about change you know of course I get voice but actually what it showed me was I really didn't I was I was really kind of assuming a lot more was there and when I said consulting I was probably saying do you want a b or c but what <laughs> I wasn't saying was look here's the problem and, and let, let's genuinely sit around and, and discuss this as a problem and really make sure that decisions are the product of, of collective expertise. And, that, and I think that's incredibly important. So I, I think for me as a leader, like, like Kate said, you almost sort of open the Pandora's box and you think, okay, well, I can never, I can never go back from this now because I've, I've seen just how important this is. And I think there's also a lesson in there about ethical leadership um, as as well and how it's really important to make sure that that people's voices are valued and unheard and that they're not the product of, of groupthink because you know it's really important that we challenge any sort of bias in school thinking so i so i really do think it's yeah vital part of, of leadership yeah wow i mean it's so lovely to hear you say that um and and we'll, we'll maybe come on to this idea of ethical leadership a bit later on as well because i know that there's that there's more to say about that um and so we'll come up we'll come back to some of those ideas about zoom in and zoom out and so on when we when we get into the toolkit later on but just briefly just to pick up on what you said that you know that when you were talking about autonomy and this idea of collective efficacy isn't that interesting that people you know really respond to that so much and that, that my understanding is that this has been found repeatedly in the in the business world as well in the research into you know people's like happiness in their workplace that autonomy is valued over and above how much you get paid you know like people just want a little bit of say <laughs> or a lot of say but just to just to have that sense of just like being valued being listened to and actually being able to be involved in decision making is such a sort of a simple like desire really that's like actually that that's actually like just a win-win because they feel valued but also when you do this you sort of you release all of this like sort of locked up like latent potential that, that exists within all of these human beings who are wanting to sort of to to you know have more of a say and be able to make intelligent decisions at the point of need um do you have anything to add to that kate have you have you thought much about this uh, this aspect of sort of giving people autonomy and collective efficacy 
Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with Elaine. I think that the process, you know, the implementation science process really ensured that people felt heard and that their views were valued and, and they were really empowered. And I think, you know, if you're going back to what you say that the practitioner is the intervention, then it's so important that that change isn't something done to people, but that it's done with people. And I, and I think for me, the other thing that I think a lot about is that, you know, schools are really large, complex organisations. And we know that the context is so important to the success of the of the policy and, it, and its implementation. And, you know, if you're not listening then to your stakeholders who will all have a view from a different kind of part of the school or a different slice of the school now or be having a different lived experience in that same organisation. I think if you're not listening or inviting them in to the process, then you're really missing out on a huge resource that you have. You're not utilising the knowledge and power that everyone has of the context of your school. So it just feels like a huge missed opportunity if this isn't the kind of approach that you're taking. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Um, and so let's get into some of these tools now. Like the idea of this toolkit is essentially that I often think of it a little bit, you know, like that metaphor when there's lots of different people and they're all feeling different bits of an elephant and one of them's holding the tail and they think, oh, this is a rope and another one's holding the trunk and another one's touching the side and they think, oh, this is a wall. And it's only when you sort of zoom out and you put all of these different accounts together that you can realise that this is an elephant in front of you, right? Um, and a little bit like that, with, so with this toolkit, each of these tools on their own, they, they don't sort of make implementation happen really effectively, but they, they each provide you with a different lens for looking at this process of change. And then when you put them all together, and they all sort of pull together into this implementation plan, which we'll come on to later. Um, so let's get into a few examples. And some of these some of these examples have like visual images that go with them. And I'll include links to some of these in the show notes. And we might have to describe what some of these images look like, because this is obviously an audio um, format. So let's start with you, Elaine. Um, I know that you were particularly taken with Gusky's Pyramid, what we refer to as Gusky's Pyramid. So firstly, just to explain for the benefit of listeners, if you can picture a, a tool or if you go to the show notes and you're on a, on a device where you, can, where you can see this, you can just pull it up. If you can picture a pyramid with five layers and at the base layer, you've got people's initials responses to CPD. So that's like, you know, like wait, the, the kind of evaluation that you usually have at the end of a session. Was the, pre was the presenter knowledgeable? Were the refreshments fresh and tasty and so on? And people sometimes are dismissive of those things. But Gusky says that it's really important that we do that kind of you know just making sure that people's basic needs are met then at the next level up we have participant learning to what extent have people actually learned what you wanted them to learn from that session and we know as teachers that what is taught is not necessarily the same as what is learned and as the staff body of 80 or 100 people might leave a session with you know at least 20 or 30 different ideas about what it was that, that they've just experienced so we need to be thinking about that <clears throat> then at the third level we have organizational support for change to what extent is the organization providing the time the resources whatever it might be coaching ict infrastructure to enable this change to happen at the fourth level, as we approach the top of the pyramid, we have the implementation bit, essentially. To what extent are people effectively using this new knowledge and skills and tools to implement change? And then at the very top, we have pupil outcomes. 
And Guski says that there are three sort of key insights that you can that you can take out of this. Number one is that each of these five layers is really important. And people often think that you can sort of go straight from number one to number five, that if you want to inc improve people outcomes, you just need to get all your colleagues together into the hall at the same time, you have some sort of a twilight session or a CPD or an inset day, and you explain what it is that needs to happen. And then we just assume that everything's going to happen. When people often don't realize that this thing can fall down at many steps along the way. Guski's second insight is that these things are sequential, that you sort of you, you have to have some sort of a of a shared, you know, um, you know, training event in order for people to learn stuff. People need to learn stuff in order to be able to make the case to say, yes, everybody agrees that this needs organizational support for change. That organizational support for change needs to be in place in order for people to effectively use these ideas. And all of that stuff has to be in place in order for you to improve people outcomes. And the third key insight of Guskies is that in the planning, you reverse the process. So you start with what's the change that you want to see in terms of the kids. Then you think about what the teachers need to do differently. How can we support them? What do we need them to learn? And then right at the end of the process, you sort of think, right, let's plan a twilight session, say. So that's a brief sort of summary of Guskies pyramid. And Thomas Gusky is, is widely known. If, you, if, if people are interested in this, if you search up Thomas Gusky five levels of evaluation, there is no shortage of stuff that he's written about this on the internet. So um, I'll pass over to you now, Elaine, and just to ask you about your, your thoughts on this tool. Okay, so um, one of the things I found really enlightening was looking at the way that Guski's pyramid was was put together. And I remember going up the levels in my head and looking at level one and level two. And I thought, yep, okay, I thought about those, I do those. And I think it was when I got to level three uh, which was around organisation and structure, that that was quite an enlightening moment for me because it made me realise how little attention I'd paid to that in the past in terms of, of change management, that, that I'd often thought about the CPL I was planning, I'd often thought about the problem I wanted to address and how I was going to follow that up with evaluation and learning walks. But I'd, I'd thought very little in the past about how that could be supported by whole school structures and how we would need to support um, teachers to, to change their learning and, and habits over time. And the, the other thing I found really eye-opening about the, the Guskis levels of data was this idea that instead of planning forwards through them, you should reverse it um, and, and plan backwards through them. And, and that's something uh, I found really, really useful when thinking about how we were going to embed the reflection tool in, in whole school policy and how we were going to improve the consistency of teaching and learning. We very much started by thinking about what we wanted to see in terms of improvement in, in student outcomes. And we very much planned back from there and the 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 crucial bit really were, was about time how much time we would need how much support we would need to give our teachers and and how much we would need to think about aligning other school structures around that and and that was a key difference to the way that i'd thought about change management before and i think that explains really why the reflection tool is still very much at the heart of teaching and learning at our school and it's still very much a shared language around it Mm, thank you. Do you have anything to add on Guski's pyramid, Kate? No, I agree. Like Elaine, seeing it as those layers was really helpful in terms of breaking down what you were doing into really specific tasks and, you know, starting with the end in mind 
and working back from there is a really useful planning tool. Um, so, yeah, I think the structure it gave us was really useful. Okay, let's come on to the next tool now, which is diffusion of innovation. And I'll ask you to talk about that one, Kate. And firstly, I'm going to attempt to describe this visual diagram for the benefit of listeners. Again, if you just Google image search uh, diffusion of innovation, you'll probably find one pretty easily. Um, But essentially, so this work came out of the field of rural sociology, um, like almost 100 years ago, when people were looking at the extent to which farmers were or were not using technological innovations that would make their farms more productive. And people were not understanding why it was that there was some resistance and some ideas that people thought would revolutionise farming. It wasn't happening. And so they started to look at this and they realised that you could divide a population of people up into a number of different sort of subsections depending on how ready for change they are. And this was written up famously into a book called Diffusions of Innovation by a researcher called Everett Rogers in the 60s or 70s. Um, And so if you can picture a sort of bell curve, listeners, (laughs) and we're going to move from left to right across this bell curve. And the the bell curve is is broken up into different subpopulations. So first of we have um, a very a very thin slither of early innovators. The diffusion of innovation model often has very precise numbers attached to it. So we have 2.5% of people are innovators, right? So a small number of people are innovators, um, the people who are driving change, right? And that might be, you know, for example, in the case of you, it could be in, in the senior team, it could be like the head teacher and, and you who were thinking of implementing this, this checklist um, tool. Then next we have early adopters, around 13 to 15% of people are early adopters, the people who you want to get on board early, people who are ready for change. Then we have an early majority and then a late majority, and then f- which are about 35% each. And then finally we have the people who are referred to in this model as laggards. And obviously we need to be careful at this point because we wouldn't want to refer to our dear and cherished colleagues as laggards. But here essentially we're talking about people who are resistant to change. And there might be any number of perfectly reasonable reasons why somebody would be resistant to a particular change. It might be that they're just you know really busy and they're overwhelmed and they can't really take anything on at this point in time. It might be that they've got loads of stuff going on in their home life. They might just have a really challenging timetable this year that they're struggling with and they just sort of feel overwhelmed and they can't take stuff on it might be that they have really good evidenced reasons why this thing isn't a good idea so there's a whole range of reasons why people you know might not be on board with a particular change and what's cool i think about the diffusion of innovation model is that you don't really need to worry about those people who are resistant to change at the outset because there's a tipping point where you get to a certain point through this curve where it tips and that tipping point comes much earlier than people realize people sort of assume that it's around the 50% mark that you need to get for half of the half of your colleagues on board with something and then once it tips you know it's sort of the other half come on board but the tipping point comes much earlier around about 15 to 20% reliably this has been found in the literature if you can get let's say if you've got a department of of you know 10 people in a, in your maths department if you can get two of those 10 people who are who are innovators who are who are really sort of respected and listened to within that department if they are using some particular aspect let's say they're using this tool or they're using some new approach to feedback or they're doing something around oracy or literacy say and they're saying every time there's a there's a department meeting they're saying to their colleagues 
this is really interesting. Does anybody want to come and see what's going on here? Or I can come and help you. Does anybody want any help with this? And they're sharing ideas and send the odd email. And what you find is that if you get that sort of that those influential sort of, you know, 20 percent, 15 to 20 percent of people on board, then it tips and it just becomes the thing that everybody does. Um, and and once once you've got a lot of people on board, then those people who are resistant to change are sort of in the minority. And it's a lot easier to deal with that problem when you get to that point. So I hope that I've done justice to that. It's a bit of a, a, a word salad to describe something that you glance at with your eyes and probably understand in an instant. But anyway, I'll hand over to you, Kate. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on diffusion of innovation and why do you pick this out as a particularly useful tool in this toolkit? Well, I think what I liked so much about the diffusion of innovation model was what a strong visual image it was of the process you were going to go through um, for the change. And, you know, the idea that you're working towards this tipping point of an adopt of adoption by people and the fact that that tipping point is much earlier than you might think. Um, and then starting to think about the readiness of the people around you and, you know, who might be your early adopters and what is it that um, they're going to need from you to kind of be recruited to this policy and kind of take it on in their own practice. And then thinking about why others might not be and what it is they need and kind of breaking it down and thinking about it in this really kind of staggered journey that um, sort of reduces how overwhelming the process can feel as you kind of start off. Um, I also felt that, you know, as time went on and you, know, you, you always get sort of the ups and downs of rolling out a change and the kind of you get the kind of highs after the CPL when it's, you know, it's a buzz and everyone's talking about it and you can really see the momentum. And then you get those lulls when uh, you sort of feel like it might all be lost and you're not sure if, if, if you're going in the right direction. And for me, um, this this curve, this really visual curve, which probably isn't coming across on a podcast uh, between us. Um, it just was a really, it was personally really motivating and a motivating way of thinking about the process and holding strong in the, those those moments when you're not really sure you're getting that traction. And um, yeah, I think it was it was quite a simple tool, but um, but really helpful. Yeah, it just comes back to that idea of, of Barbara Kelly's, doesn't it? The idea that the, the practitioner is the intervention and identifying those early adopters. There's a, a former colleague of mine, Chris Brown, who's a professor. I think he's up at Durham now. But he, he when when he was running a, pro a project around research learning communities, um, they, they he gave t all the teachers a survey and he asked them like who is who is influential within your you know who do you respect as a teacher who's who's up to speed with the, with the latest research who do you, whose lessons do you really like to go and, and, and visit and so on and through that he identified you know who those people are who you want to get on that early adoption team and then you can sort of go up and gently tap them on the shoulder and say hey do you want to be involved in this thing so you don't start this policy with a big fanfare you start it by sort of you know like I said earlier building this coalition of the willing um so it is a lovely tool i think uh, and it's a it's, i think it's quite a reassuring one do you, do you have anything to add to that elaine um no only that i was nodding along in agreement to what you were saying about your friend that's a really interesting idea and it fits with something i've been thinking about recently as well about when you are trying to to bring about change that actually a good way of doing it is looking for some of the best practice that's already there and rather than 
you know, wishing to eradicate that, thinking about why is that best practice and bringing their, their voices to the table because they're the people that are going to be able to tell you most about what they do. So I think that's a really important part of it and, and probably speaks back to the importance of the vertical um, slice as well, because I think so often the mistake that we can make is 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 just to alienate those people that are already doing great things in in the school by, you know, putting in place something that that means that they can't then have the freedom to to deliver on their good practice. Mm, thank you. Okay, so let's move on to the next of these tools now. This one I'll ask you to talk about again, Elaine. This is um, CBAM, the Concerns-Based Adoption Model. And again, I will attempt to describe this tool. This is based on the on the work of some researchers. Again, th these are based in the States called Hall and Horde. Um, and they've been writing about this for decades. They've worked with lots of schools and large organizations around change management. And essentially, you start with a vision of where you are now and then a vision of where you want to be. And we often use that approach at UCL. We, there's, a, there's a tool that we often use called the Impact Frame that was developed by uh, Vivian Porritt and Peter Early and colleagues, essentially where you sort of say, you know, start with this utopian vision of the future. What would it be like, say, three to five years from now, if X, whatever it is, let's say you're doing a feedback intervention, what would it be like if feedback was absolutely as good as feedback can possibly be what would it be like for the children and so you, you ask questions like what would, what would the young people say think and feel in this imagined future where feedback is as good as it could possibly be and likewise for you as adults uh, or for visiting adults say what would it be like for you what would you say think and feel in this imagined future and those those phrases those questions are sort of intentionally vague if you like it might be like what might you say to yourself what might you overhear people saying and so on. So you flesh out this picture of the future that you want to work towards and then you've got a picture of where you are now. And then, uh, and again, you, ask, you apply those questions. What do the children say, think and feel now? What do colleagues say, think and feel? And that's a powerful activity to do, but sometimes it can feel quite daunting because you can think... I know where I am and I know where I want to be, but I really don't know how, how to get from A to B, which is obviously, you know, what implementation is all about. And so Hall and Hoard suggest that, that you can build a bridge between these two places. And this bridge has three planks, if you like. One of them is called stages of concern. One of them is called levels of use. And the third one I call steps to success. Hall and Horde refer to this as innovation configurations, which it just makes me feel sleepy. So I call it steps to success. And so just to, brief, just to briefly um, go through these. So stages of concern, is each of them are like a scale, if you like. Stages of concern is a table that where, you, where you work from the bottom to the top. And again, there's images of this in the show notes, listeners. First of all, we're concerned at the level of self, with things like, you know, I'm aware of this, but it doesn't really concern me, or I would like to know more about this, or how will this affect me, right? So you're thinking about how this affects you as a person. Then you move to a level of concern with the task. So like, what does this task actually involve? What needs to be done, you know, and so on? What, what don't I have? And then you move to a level of concern with impact, you know, to what extent is this actually doing what we want it to do for the young people? How can we relate this to what other people are doing? And how can we collaborate? And then at the very top, of this scale there's a kind of metacognitive level of like refocusing where you're like okay I know everything about this and I also feel like I've got some ideas about how to make this even better now 
So that's stages of concern, and we want people to be working up that scale from from the bottom to the top, from being you know blissfully unaware of something to being so aware of it that they're thinking about how to make it even better. The second plank is called levels of use. And again, this is like a table that runs from the bottom to the top. And essentially, it goes from non-use to using it all the time. And this is recognizing that just because people are concerned with something or are aware of something, that doesn't mean that they're actually walking the talk. So we've got stages of concern, levels of use. And then the third one, this idea of steps to success is such a powerful tool. People really, really resonate with this one. And essentially, you have five variations. So you think about going back to where we were a moment ago, you've got your target level of use, this utopian vision of the future where everything is brilliant. And then you've got what things are like now, which you could call your baseline. And then you think, well, how are we going to get from A to B? So first of all, you say, well, what's it going to look like when we're halfway there? And so we'll, we'll you know, flesh out that, that picture. of, And you can do this at the level of an individual teacher. You can do it for, say, a department or a year group if you're in a primary school or a phase. And you can also do a whole school version. So this tool can work at a number of different levels. So you think, what's it going to look like when we're halfway there? And by the way, it's also very useful to use with young people themselves. And then you split the difference again. So like, if you've got target level of use halfway and baseline, you've got a sort of a, a three-point scale, but it often still seems quite like a big leap to get from one to the next. So the next stage is to go, what's it going to look like when we're almost there, when we're halfway between the midpoint and the goal state, and you flesh that out. And here we really get into the nuance of, of you know, the detail of, of daily sort of school life. And then finally, you come to the, the second stage in that scale, if you like, next steps. What's it going to look like when we're on our way? What's it going to look like next week? What's it going to look like in a month from now? And so with all of these tools, these, these three scales, you can use them as a kind of coaching tool. So you can sort of say, you know, where are you on a good day? Where were you at the start of that lesson? Where were you at the end of that lesson? Where are you on a, you know, on a day when you're feeling really overwhelmed? Where are you on average? You know, and what, what, what support do you need to get to the next level? And how long do you think that will take? And so on. And so you can see how these three scales work together. If you can, if you can work through this process using these both as a coaching tool, but you can also use it as a snapshot evaluation tool. So you can just send this out as like a, as like a three-point scale question on, a, on, a, on an anonymous survey and ask your colleagues to just say, where are you on these three scales? And you do that repeatedly throughout the year so, or over two or three years. So you can see how your colleagues are progressing along these scales over time. And when you get to the point where the majority of your colleagues are at the top end of stages of concern and they're at the top end of levels of use and they're working towards the target level of the steps to success scale, that's when you've nailed it, right? That's when you're, you know, you're where you want to be when you've, when you've bridged this gap. So again, that was a rather lengthy explanation, but hopefully that's clear to people. So why do you pick out this tool, Elaine, as something that really resonated with you? I, I think for me, it really speaks to the heart of why do people do what they do and, and you know, how do you want them to feel about things? And if, if I start with stages of concern, I think so often when you announce a new initiative at a meeting, the, the worst scenario is that nobody says anything. And you get that kind of sense that people are appeasing you, but they don't really believe in it and they're going to go away and do it you know because they think they have to but they haven't really said what they really think about it and it 
for us, it was such a, a useful structure to put a language around levels of, of motivation. And we particularly used it with middle leaders. And, and we did see differences between people kind of accepting it and then people really internalizing it and then people beginning to think about the impact of it. Actually, oh, this is really useful. This can help me. Um, or actually, I really like this, but I want to make this more subject specific to me. And actually, here's a different version I've made for my, my subject. I, I really liked it when I saw that happening and lastly or actually I want to collaborate with other departments and, and other areas so you could you could see people going up those different stages of, of concern and that was quite heartening because that did happen over time the levels of use I found really useful on a whole school level because obviously there were 10 different principles around the reflection tool without around the principles we wanted people to be using in their lessons and it was a really useful kind of baseline survey that I can do at the start and, and end of the year and, and see you know how people's motivations and people's uh, confidence levels um, around the, these tools were, were changing and how they felt about them. And that's been really useful to see that evolving over time and has really helped me to, to hone in on which aspects are really important to focus at a whole school level. And the steps to success, I, I think, is, is just so useful, particularly at a, a department level and an individual level actually to, to inform planning and, and to put a language around what it actually looks like so people can see it because so often when you're talking about things they can feel quite abstract and what people want to know at the most basic level is what, what does that look like you know what does that look like in my classroom and it drills it down even further so I, I do think that's particularly useful particularly around coaching um, either a, a head of department or an individual in, in their classroom. What, what are the steps and, and what does it actually look like? So you can actually name it, see it and, and do it. Mm, thank you. Thank you. That's brilliant. Do you have anything to add to that, Kate? I would say that this was we, we um, use some of the tools from the implementation process in our middle leadership development program following um, the pilot and um, and I would say this was one of the, the most popular tools with middle leaders in terms of using it in their action planning or in their valuations. And I think um, sort of fleshing out that five point scale, like you said, where, you, you know, what is this going to look like at the half point, you know, halfway point? So if they're action planning for the year and their kind of priorities, what, what might they be able to see by spring term one? And, you know, what would it look like? What would they hear? What would they be able to measure in data? And then kind of you know fleshing that out into each of those five points I think that was a really useful tool um, and then evaluating against that and you know and kind of thinking about whether whether or not they did um, get there but also thinking about the individuals in their departments um, and thinking about their kind of stages of use and or stages of concern their levels of use and therefore what they might need to kind of make that journey so I, I do think of this one as as, as a tool that really stands out in the toolkit as useful mm, it really is a belter and I, I i love how so when mark quinn and i came to visit you um a year later after we we kick-started we were absolutely blown away not only with how you know how effective the the implementation of, of that coaching tool the, the reflection tool had been but also with the way in which you'd taken the implementation science on board and like you say that you were that you were sharing these ideas with your your middle leaders um it's really lovely to see um okay let's just let's talk about the 
the, the, the next tool, um, which is not really so much of a tool as just a, an idea, really. And this comes from the work of Dylan William and his colleagues, um, who, as you know, as many people know, has been sort of wrestling with the, the problem of how to scale up and implement in an effective way uh, practices around formative assessment. And that's not been a straightforward process of implementation. Um, and so, so much so that, that Dylan recently wrote that if he and Paul Black had known 20 years ago what would be involved, he said neither of us would have had the stomach for it. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's been a long and grueling uh, process, but it sort of has a happy ending, that that story. You know, that, that Dylan's embedded formative assessment program now is really effective. There was, it was recently subject to a randomized controlled trial and it, it was a healthy, robust effect size and essentially they talk about this idea of a tight but loose formulation where they're saying that you know that people talk about fidelity a lot in in implementation sometimes a bit too much in my view where they're saying you know like we need to we need to make sure that the ideas that are being implemented have fidelity in other words that they that they closely resemble the ideas that were initially tested and proven, you know, in, in the research, say. Um, and it is true that you need to have that because often things undergo what, what Dylan and others have, have described as a lethal mutation. This idea that we've imported from biology where, you know, sometimes an, organi an organism can have a genetic mutation that is a bad one, right, that leads to the death of the organism or the death of the species. Um, and we don't want that. And, and with regard to, it, to, to assessment for learning, there are lots of weird mutations of that practice where people were using like traffic light cups and lollipop sticks and mini whiteboards every five minutes and ideas that may well have validity and, and utility in the classroom but they bore very little resemblance you know like if you read inside the black box there is no mention of lollipop cups <laughs> sorry of traffic light cups and lollipop sticks in the original research so it, it, it sort of mutated and become something different um and so so he says that you need to have a tight approach where you want people to have fidelity enough fidelity to the original idea that it hasn't, hasn't undergone any lethal mutations but also you want there to be a, quite a significant amount of looseness in this so that you can take account of local context and, and take advantage of local contextual factors again so that you can harness some of that autonomy that we were talking about earlier so that people can think about how they can apply these ideas in a way that makes sense to them and for their particular pupils at this particular point in time so Kate, um, let's go over to you. Why did you uh, pick this one out as something that you particularly liked? I think um, when we had that first session um, with the vertical slice and Elaine presented her policy to the to the group, I was just really struck by her intellectual humility that she had around the policy, that she was so open to the feedback that, you know, we had picked a really vocal group that were really passionate about the school and and you know it was exactly what we wanted but nobody held back everyone was really happy to share ideas and some of those ideas would have been difficult to hear if you've worked really hard on a policy and you've thought really deeply about it and you brought brought it to a group and um i was full of admiration for elaine throughout this process and the way she welcomed um this feedback and 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 what the process added to the policy but I don't think many other people would handle this so well so I think one of the first things I like about tight but loose is I think it's really important as a leader to have thought about the loose parts of your policy before you're ready to hand it over and be ready to to give some of it away and let it be changed and let it be worked with and and give that ownership and agency um, to the people that are going to be using it and fundamentally that's going to be the the heart of its success so it has to be done um, 
but you know also because it's really important to identify what are the loose parts what are the parts that aren't going to be undermining of its success or change it fundamentally from a way that was intended to be used and so I think the thinking of, of that beforehand is just really valuable and I also think it's the thinking of the tight but loose parts in the group discussion in that implementation team that vertical slice team so that you have an agreement on those parts because when it's when it's kind of released to the organization and you've got maybe 100 or 200 staff working with your policy you want you know if you've got a whole team of people who are mindful of those tight but loose parts and can, can and are observing it alongside you, you you're going to be able to spot where those kind of problems are are coming up and um yeah so i just think that's a really helpful piece of thinking to have done before you start Mm, thank you. Do you have anything to add to that, Elaine? Um, no, only that when you're thinking about whole school teaching and learning, obviously the loose part uh, becomes very important when you're talking about subject-specific implementation. And I think it's really important to be tight but loose when you're thinking about whole school teaching and learning because, you know, what makes great formative assessment in maths might not be the same as, as English to, to modern foreign languages. So I, I do think that loose bit is incredibly important, um, particularly given what we know about subject-specific implementation. Mm, yes, yeah, thank you. And I would just echo um, what Kate said about, about the way in which you, you allowed people to come in and to look at this policy. I remember having conversations with Mark early on, uh, Mark Quinn, my colleague at UCL, who was saying, you know, this is potentially quite sensitive because when we started this, this programme, when we, when we were first talking about it, we were like, this is really for... For, for, you know, uh, you, uh, an early part of it is like deciding what the policy is going to be and then and then building it from the ground up. And this is something that you'd already sort of done some work on. And we thought this is potentially quite sensitive to go in and, you know, to, to be potentially looking at may, where you may have made some missteps in terms of what we now know about implementation. Um, and you absolutely um, exemplified that ideal, I think, that Kate just identified of, of intellectual humility, of just being really welcoming and saying, I'm really happy for people to come in and to to pull this apart and to look at it from multiple perspectives like you say there's you know sometimes there's an ego uh in human beings isn't there <laughs> that, that can get in the way um and so that was really nice and, and it's something that i'm quite curious about as we as we're scaling up this approach you know to what extent is uh, uh, is is this this quality of, of intellectual humility prevalent enough in the in the population of school leaders that actually this approach to school leadership and to school to change management will become as widespread as I would like it to be. I think it is. I mean, I think there's a tendency to, to sometimes think about that sort of leadership as being soft leadership. And I think that's a, a misconception that that people have. And that's a kind of damaging idea of leadership that that's sold that you know this idea that you, you make decisions because you've got the most expertise and then you know you tell people what to do and if you let people have too much say you're weak you, you know that that's mm. a very traditional idea of leadership and, and a very damaging one and, and I think you know one of the things that I've learned as as a leader every year I do it is more and more the need to be anti-fragile and you know you learn more and more about what you don't know and if, if your decisions are genuinely going to be the, the product of collective expertise then of, of course you have to be you know anti-fragile anti, anti -fragile and, and, and not take these things 
personally at all um and and i think that that's really important for for ethical leadership and and i think that's prevalent in a lot of the ideas about leadership that that are emerging that that are really welcome Mm. thank you thank you so as i mentioned earlier the the initial toolkit had 10 tools in it and i've done lots of work and reading and thinking since then and there are now 18 sort of chapters if you like in this in this um in this online course that i've made um and in preparation for this conversation i asked you to pick out a couple of the new ones that you that you particularly uh like the look of um and elaine you picked out pivot or persevere um and so i'll ask you about that in a second but just to explain for the benefit of listeners like lots of the research that's been done in the field of implementation science is very academic and it's quite impenetrable (laughs) you know even like for somebody who's a researcher like i am and you know i've been reading academic papers for you know my job for for a long time and it's not it's not an easy world to get through there's lots of jargon and there's lots of really good ideas but you have to do quite a lot of work and so in, in creating this toolkit for schools I've done very little but in the way of original thinking. All I've done is sort of trawl the, the research literature and also change literature from, from outside of this academic discipline and pull them together. So this idea of, of pivot or persevere comes from the business world and in particular from a very well-known book which is sort of seen as like the Bible of startups or has been for a number of years called The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. It was published in 2011. Um, and he talks about this idea of pivot or persevere. And in, in particular, in the chapter in that book called Pivot or Persevere, he says that there is no bigger destroyer of creative potential than the misguided decision to persevere with something. And that's sometimes referred to in similar in a, a similar idea is this idea of sunk cost fallacy, right? That you that you've that you've invested so much time and energy in something that you just need to see it through now, even though the evidence <laughs> is telling you that this isn't working anymore, and you just need to sort of to 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 doggedly persevere with it. And so he talks about pivot or persevere. And so I've suggested as one it's the final tool in the toolkit is that you have rev- regular pivot or persevere meetings. And that doesn't mean that you pivot to something completely different or you just double down on this as it currently is. There are a number of different ways in which you can pivot. And you mentioned a couple of them earlier, Elaine. So just to share for the benefit of listeners, there's a zoom in pivot, right? Where a single element within what was a complex intervention becomes the whole intervention where you realize that one thing is really, really working and you just want to really emphasize that. And also likewise, you can have a zoom out pivot where what you previously considered to be the whole intervention becomes a single element within something that's much wider. You can have a pupil group pivot. So let's say that a behaviour initiative that was aimed at year eight boys, you find that it improves girls' behaviour more effectively. And you think, oh, OK, so this is there's some different differences going on here in terms of demographics. You can have a pupil need pivot where the problem that you were wanting to solve, actually, the more you find out about it, you find that it's not as bad as you initially thought and that there are other things. And so you pivot to another problem that you now know more about because of the investigations. And there are a couple of others that I could go into, but we don't. you get, you get the idea. So there are a number of ways in which we can change and adapt to the data, essentially, as it's coming in. So what was it about this, Elaine, that that, um, that caught your eye? Well, I think, you know, given that the sort of minor matter of a global pandemic 
pandemic and all the things that teachers have had to <laughs> think about like, you know the idea of pivoting it, it's and being adaptable is, is one that we've we've all had to do recently and I, I found the terminology really useful um particularly around the way we we had to pivot around remote teaching and and the zoom in was really useful for me I think because one of the things we did zoom in on was formative assessment because that became the one big thing during remote teaching that, that we just really wanted to, to focus on alone and actually the, the steps to success and the model around that was really useful for me in terms of quite quickly providing a framework for teachers around what good pedagogy pedagogy could look like um, informative assessment and then the zoom out as well that's become particularly important because like you said as time moves on and you begin to look at other things we've begun to look at the reflection tool as part of a bigger thing which also includes curriculum as well so we're zooming out and thinking about well okay what, what's the place of the reflection tool and and uh, its implementation within the bigger picture of the curriculum and what we want for the school so that that forms a part of that that vision as well so those those two things um are really useful and and then i think in terms of, of pivot I, I do see different faculty leaders now wanting to use it um in in different ways or, or focus on on different aspects of it which i think is is really really healthy again and 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 like i said it's a live document so it's sort of the golden thread of our principles and our values and, and what we've decided we want for the, the diet of our students remains the same but but those tools might might be flexible um because education is changing and and the world is changing quite rapidly Indeed it is. Yes, I've noticed that. <laughs> um, and, and being adaptable is something that I am I'm very keen on. And you know, one of the main reasons that I'm interested in learning to learn, for example, is that, you know, we need to be teaching young people, not just as teachers, but, you know, young people themselves, that they need to be able to adapt and respond as the data comes in. Um, and so that's going to be really, really important, I think, as we scale up this implementation process that people are, it's not just like lots of lots of this is sort of quite front loaded. We work through as a vertical slice team we work through all of these tools together we write this really robust plan but that's not the end of the process you know to, to a large extent the process is over then because then you everything gets calendared the communications plan gets calendared monitoring and evaluation gets calendared and you just set reminders and you just do what your calendar tells you to do when you do it and it should all tick along but you also need to be collecting data in an ongoing way and thinking about what that data tells you and there's a whole rate there's much bigger conversation that we could have about that that we probably don't have time to get into today but monitoring and evaluation i think is really key and i think that we need to essentially look at the, at the process of monitoring and evaluation not in the way that schools currently think of it in terms of data that's already collected in the school but actually thinking of it as like an ongoing action research project where you're where you're collecting multiple types of data you're using you know looking at students work and people voice and teacher voice and doing surveys and interviews and psychometric questionnaires not necessarily all of that but you know a range of different things and again you know a little bit like the toolkit each of those data collection tools shines a light and gives you a lens through which to look at this from a different perspective and if you use enough data collection tools then you can see this thing in a really rich sort of three-dimensional way 
And then you can use that information to, to inform decision-making and also link it to resourcing. So you're thinking, okay, we need some more coaching and mentoring. Some people need to be retrained. We had a high staff turnover last year. We need to really think about how we onboard people, for example. So just responding and, and pivoting, as you say. Uh, thank you very much. Okay, let's move on to the last of the tools and then we'll, we'll zoom out ourselves and have a bit of a wider discussion about your, your more recent work with implementation science and then we'll get on to rethinking education and, and setting the world to rights. Um, so the final tool, that, the one that you picked out, Kate, was the, the pre-mortem and this is an idea that I got very recently. I came across in a book by Guy Claxton, the, the, which was a focus of, of uh, a recent podcast, um, The Future of Teaching and the Myths That Hold It Back, which is brilliant, by the way, listeners. If you haven't got a copy, get your hands on one. Um, he talks about the pre-mortem, and he says, one practical technique that has gained wide recognition in the business world is the pre-mortem. As Gary Klein, the American psychologist who originally devised the method, explains, and here we have a quote from Klein, a pre-mortem is the hypothetical opposite of a post-mortem. A post-mortem in a medical setting allows health professionals and the family to learn what caused the patient's death. A pre-mortem comes at the beginning of a project rather than at the end so that the project can be improved rather than autopsied. And that's the end of the quote from Klein, but I'll just share a bit more from Claxton's book because I think it's useful. He says, in a business context, a typical pre-mortem begins after a team has been briefed, say, on a proposed project. The leader, projecting into the future, tells everyone that the project has failed spectacularly. Participants in the meeting immediately have some time to try to think up and record every possible reason why the project failed, and then group members take it in turns to share items from their list. The whole team then spend the rest of the meeting redesigning the project to accident-proof it against all these possible future sources of failure. And Claxton goes on to say, I can't see any reason why we should not introduce school students to the idea of a pre-mortem in the context of sixth form projects, say, and see if they might prove useful. And um, when I've used this with people, it's absolutely incredible. The, um, like, it's like just like this release valve, all of the sort of the, the, the built up sort of like concerns that people have had. You just allow them to vent and to share and just to, and the people have no difficulty <laughs> imagining all of the ways in which this thing is going to go off the rails. And it is so useful. And as Claxton says, you can then do this future proofing. Um, so what was it about this that caught your eye, Kate? Yeah, there was so much I liked about the new parts of, of the process and the programme. But it was the simplicity of this tool in particular that makes you wonder why it's, you know, it's not something that's used in schools all the time. And it really should be. And it's something I will, you know, definitely be using in schools in my work from now on. Um, and again, it, it's benefiting from that wide range of different stakeholders scrutinising a policy before it launches. And, and you, with the aim of massively increasing the chance that the policy is successful. And I think it also you know, it's looking at this policy and checking, is this the right one before it launches? Is it, what are the pitfalls going to be? And if you're looking at a process like implementation science, which is increasing your chance of success in this policy being adopted, it's so important that what you roll out is the right policy. And so I just think the more, the, the more uh, kind of times that you sit with a group looking and scrutinizing and checking before it goes live in a school, um, um, the more likely are, you are going to be to succeed. And, you know, it, it means that you've thought about all those possible pitfalls 
but you've also got a plan around either how to avoid them or how you're going to manage them when it when it when they when they happen and if you hit that kind of inevitable bump in the road you're prepared for it but not only are you prepared for it but you've got this team of other stakeholders who are also prepared for it because they've been part of the process of of looking at those at those possible challenges so um that that was what i liked yes yeah, so much about this this kind of um activity mm, thank you you're right and to use that word inevitable like they are inevitable reality is never smooth implementation is never smooth and and what you really need to have is that sort of like like you say anti-fragility like the the ability to be agile and flexible and actually you know what i like about the pre-mortem is that when you sit down and take the time to think of it you can actually come up with a pretty accurate you know like list of ways in which you know this thing might hit bumps in the road and you can plan for them in advance yeah because i think you know one of the things you know and we can think about this in other parts of the process when you think about why people might be resistant to change and we know that um, you know, as you go through your career, you can get that change fatigue in, educa in education. Sometimes change is brought in really rapidly. It's not been thought through. It's not been planned for. And, it, you know, and uh, as you, depending on which schools you've been in or how long you've been in education, you can sort of kind of feel a bit like, oh, here we go again. And, you know, I think it's really, um, you know, important consideration as a leader in a school to think so carefully before you roll something out and to have put it through every possible kind of check and balance before it goes live to avoid adding to that because it's an it's it's a difficult part of our profession yes do you have anything to add to that elaine um only to add to what Kate's saying, though, you know, the way I see it, you've kind of you kind of got a pot on the table of, of your morale and your collective efficacy of your staff. And every time you launch something that's not well thought out or, you know, is not in tune with what they're thinking, feeling, you lose a little bit, you lose a little bit more. And, and, and that bucket of staff morale and, you know, positive feeling and the collective efficacy is so precious that, that I think mm. so often we squander it through, you know, not thinking through problems, not thinking through initiatives or, or being out of tune with our staff. And, and, and then you've really got nothing left to, to, to launch anything. So I, I think we sometimes underestimate just how precious that, that part is. And I think the other mistake we make um, linking back to, to what you said about evaluating and monitoring, I really like what you said about almost treating it like a, um, a professional in, an inquiry, like you're doing research, because I think so often we don't get the progress measures right. You know, we identify progress measures, but but they're really just proxies. And all we're doing is we're improving the proxy, but we're not making genuine progress. And I think that is so important to get, to get right and make sure that's balanced. And that comes from a range of data, because otherwise that can be so skewed and, and damaging as well. Yes, thank you. I like that idea of the pot, the boiling pot of, of morale. And I, I wonder if there if there's a boiling pot in the in the depths of the DFE somewhere. I'm sort of I'm picturing a pot that that boiled dry. I think it's just charcoal in that in that pot very much at the moment. Definitely just the ashes of what was. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, yes, it would be lovely, wouldn't it, if the if the if some civil servants or ministers would take on this idea of a pre mortem and to to reintroduce because you know ministers this used to happen in the olden days, <laughs> before before policies would be announced on a Friday night via Twitter through favoured um, channels um, and then either dropped or doubled down on in time for the Sunday morning newspapers. This this is not normal. This is not a normal way of implementing change. And I would dearly love for the for people at the at the top of this of this structure to to take this idea of the pre-mortem on board and just to think things through a little bit more carefully that would be lovely would be my wish list although the chances of them listening to a, a, a conversation about rethinking education is probably quite slim so so they may may well not hear this so so let's come on to some some of the more recent work that you've done with with implementation we'll touch we'll, we'll this fairly briefly if we can because i know that you've done this work since since we did this initial work around the checklist which became this reflection tool you did some work around anti-racism using some of this some of these ideas didn't you yeah, and I think if there's, there's one sort of change you're leading in school that you really need to rely heavily on, on solid principles for, it, it's the work of, of anti-racism because what you certainly don't want to do is make any change that, that's tokenistic. And I think, you know, we absolutely owe it to anti-racism to, to implement um, long, long-standing change and long-term change. And, you know, particularly with, with a subject like anti-racism, you're, you're really talking about changing culture um and changing the culture of the school and you and you're looking at issues like bias which which are really subtle and and really hard to measure so so i think like like you said james you have to approach it really like you know one big research inquiry or practitioner inquiry and i you know the, the tool that i found most useful was Guska's um, five levels of data and really planning back from there and planning a, a long-term change because obviously, you know, just running a few C CPD sessions really um, it is not going to, to cut it. And, you know, the, the balance of hard and soft data is really, really important because, you know, so often when you're talking about people's lived experiences, you know, you when people are asked to put hard data around it, I, I think that's that's a, a really unsatisfactory thing to do and a really wrong thing to do. I, I think the soft data um, is so important and I think the way you go about collecting that in school is, is really important. So I was really pleased to have tools from the implementation toolkit to, to rely on um, and, and to direct the, the change with. Mm. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, and so so did you put a vertical slice team together um, to do this anti-racism work? Yeah, we did. So we started off by putting an implementation team together and we, we had a vertical slice and we were very much, and we included students in that. Um, so a lot of our early work relied quite a lot on student voice and that, that was really the, the starting point. And we, we said to ourselves, that we'll know we've had an impact when that student voice begins to change. So that really did help us to, to um, set our aims, really, that our aims were for that student voice to change and, that, and for them to feel differently about their, their sense of belonging in school and what they were taught about. So we did that. And, and from that, we were able to sort of develop a, a baseline of, of where where we were and then we've really it, it's been really deliberately slow that we, we're really spending a whole year on that implementation 
sort of team for the first bit because we're looking at different areas and, and thinking about the changes we want to make and, and how we're going to make them. And, and we're coupling that um, with a lot of CPL. So thinking about that level three about organisational structure, one of the things we realised quite early on is, is that um, unless our staff body have a, a high level of racial literacy, we, we can't even begin to make changes in the right way. Because what you can see initially uh, with things like anti-racism is people rush to sort of change their curriculum. But of course, those those curriculum changes are, are not going to be worthwhile if, if they're still uh, not made with high levels of racial literacies. We've spent a lot of time sort of front-loading that and we've had two sessions um, from the Black Curriculum on that and, and we're working towards being at the end of year at a point where faculty leaders are going to think more concretely um, about the changes they want to make as a school and what changes we want to make to school policy as a result of having that year looking into it. Mm, thank you. That's really fascinating and, and lovely to hear. Like you say, it's such an important topic. Um, and Kate, um, have, can, can you share any examples of the ways in which these ideas have played out in your work outside of this, this initial project that we did, possibly within UCL, or maybe, I don't know whether you've used these ideas in your wider work in Camden Learning? Yeah, we, um, you know, like I mentioned before, we, you know, as soon as we had gone through the pilot, Elaine and I, you know, we really we still carry on talking about how much it impacted our own practice. And we just felt it was knowledge that needed to be shared with all leaders that um, that it was really powerful. And um, so uh, we incorporated it into the Middle Leadership Development Programme. Um, which is usually, and, and it still is, a bespoke programme that looks at the needs of the groups and is responsive to the needs of the groups through a survey at the start of the year. Um, and we often, through our partnership, um, benefit from you know, in, in, um, influence and involvement by the IOE, delivery of sessions. And so we, we made the next year all about uh, looking at implementation science and how middle leaders could use these tools in their development plans and um, sort of talking them through the toolkit and the hows and whys of, my, of, of using this approach to change. Um, and it was really positively received. I mean, we slightly have run into a pandemic, which was unexpected. And so it's hard to get a true measure on the impact that the work perhaps had that year, but it certainly um, it certainly was well received by leaders and um, and is something that you now hear talked about and used um, regularly in, in at UCL Academy. And we have um, also drawn on the kind of idea and some of the framework when um, working at Camden Learning on their STEAM programme, which um, you know, Camden Council funds a, a STEAM programme. Camden has a really um, large and growing STEAM economy and there's funding to make sure that that links and the opportunities that it brings links to Camden's young people and part of that includes uh, a middle leader uh, development programme looking at designing curriculum for STEAM and STEAM education and, um, and that works with um, about well over half of all primary and secondary schools in Camden as well as the local FE college um, and 
to have impact if you're looking at how you design curriculum. We thought it was really important that it included uh, leadership development as part of that so that when leaders finish the programme that they also have the tools to disseminate that widely and, and lead the change in their schools. And we worked um, collaboratively with the IOE uh, on those modules and we certainly included some of that theory around implementation science and how you might work backwards from the end in mind um, to make sure that change was really effective so yeah it's it's certainly influenced all of my practice amazing thank you um okay let's just let's just end this part on implementation science with something that you touched on earlier elaine where you were talking about ethical leadership and how you think that this implementation science for schools approach this sort of program this toolkit that that i've uh, put together it, uh, it sort of exemplifies what you what you describe as as an ethical approach to leadership can you expand a little bit on that and and then i'll, I'll ask the same the same thing to you kate yeah, I suppose I'd, I'd come at it from the point of view that if we have a, a moral imperative to be research informed about the decisions we make in our schools and make sure that we're doing the very best we can by our communities, I think we also have a moral imperative to make sure the way we implement those those aspects of research are at the same level that they're research informed so so i think there you, you know there is an ethical side to this that you you have to really think about the way you you think about change in schools otherwise you know the well-being of your, your staff can suffer particularly around what we've said about change fatigue and also you know then your students don't benefit from these changes and, and some of the 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 worst practice i've ever seen in in 18 years of education has come out the best intentions but you know in 18 years of education i've never seen so much bad practice come out of people taking an idea and and thinking they're doing the right thing so so i think that there is a, a sort of moral imperative as a leader to, to make sure that you're skilled in the way you embed change in schools and, and to make sure that the well-being of, of your staff doesn't suffer because of badly implemented change and, and to make sure really that, that your, your students which is you know your purpose are, are benefiting from things that things being the best they can be for them mm, thank you thank you do you have anything to add to that kate I mean, I completely agree with Elaine. And I, I also think when I think about this and this kind of ethical leadership, you know, it, I think it just sits really uncomfortably with everyone when you think about that kind of autocratic leader, that top down kind of tells people what to do and people do it. And and if you're, you know, if it's not done, it's your fault as a leader or you're weak or, or you know, all those kind of other kind of awful kind of depictions of leaders in that style. And I just think this... Um, this approach to leadership really resonated with me, that idea of um, and a collaborative approach of, you know, listening to the expertise within your organisation of valuing the people around you. You know, I've been like lots of people really lucky to work with, you know, it's just such brilliant colleagues at all the different schools I've been at. And the idea of not drawing on that expertise around you or listening to that voice around you just is it, just not something that I could consider as a working style. And I, and I think with this approach, I, I really recognise in our Vertical Slice team that, um, it, you know, almost that kind of idea of passing the ladder down and, and developing the leadership of those around you, you know, it really was a great opportunity for everyone involved in this project. Um, and I think that was really heartening to see. And I just think it is the right approach to leading others.
I was just going to say to add to that, Kate, I really agree. And one of the nice things about it is that it that it's it's really empowering, and I think empowering of others. And I, I feel like I've got this great gift that I've learned about, and now I can pass it down to, to other people, which is how I felt particularly about the anti-racism work. I thought, oh yes, I've got something that can can really help you know, to, to achieve the aims with that. And I think, you know, it particularly challenges some of the, the messages that, that you're sort of told um, in in leadership, maybe particularly as a female, I don't know, but, you know, one of the things I was told, not in my current school, I should add, but in a previous school, you know, that I was too much for the people and, you know, I was too much sort of in, involved in, in stuff and I shouldn't be so friendly with them and talking <laughs> to them and I shouldn't care so much about, about what they thought. And, you know, years later, to do in this implementation science project, I kind of look back on that and think that was really quite a sign of, of toxic leadership. And the great thing about implementation science is that it, it's effective and it, it's also very ethical and it's effective because it really takes account of the, the well-being agency and autonomy of people. And I think it just provides such such a great framework. Mm, thank you. This is lovely. And this is why I keep going on about implementation science, because I feel exactly the same. I've got this bee in my bonnet. I just want everybody to know about this way of doing things because it's, you know, it's it's a different way of doing things, but it's not that hard to get your head around. So that, that initial program that we that we um, ran was like there was four half day sessions where the first two half days were sort of spent going through the toolkit in some detail. And then the second two half days are where we're actually writing the plan. Um, but there are fast track versions of this. And this, this course that I've made has got 18 episodes and there's a, there's a handbook that goes with it. And there's an implementation planning template. But each of these episodes are like sort of, you know, between like three and 10 minutes long. And so if you added them all together, I haven't done, but I imagine that it was probably, there's probably about three hours in total, two to three hours of like sort of content to work through at your own pace. And we, it's been a really interesting process. I'm going through writing this 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 course and, and scaling it up and getting it out to schools. I've been applying the toolkit, the implementation science toolkit, to the process of implementing <laughs> this course, which is really interesting and very meta and right up my street. Um, but so so we'll see if the proof is in the pudding. If we can actually make it so that lots of schools can can take these ideas and run with them. Um, I would I would love to see it. And I think that the gains that we could potentially see in terms of, if you, you know, if you think back to those statistics from the world of health care, if, if you can if you can go from like 17 percent coverage to 80 percent coverage in, you know, within a short space of time, if you can if you can make sort of um, equal sort of sized gains in terms of helping young people to get more effective at their learning in terms of improving and it's not just about you know improving grades right but like they like were talking about anti-racism whether it's about staff well-being young people's mental health whatever it is that you want to implement this will do that and that is why one of the reasons that I like this is that it's generic right like whatever I whichever of the schools this is partly why I've made this course I've been running this in all these schools who are doing all this different stuff and I'm doing the same input. The implementation science stuff is generic. You can apply it to loads of different things. Um, and <clears throat> so I'm very excited to be at this point. And, um, and thank you both very much for, for taking time to share your thoughts on this. And I really value your, um, your energy and your enthusiasm for these ideas.
So let's take a breath and and change topic. So as you know, before we get into rethinking education, I like to I like to get to know something a little bit about the guests and about why it is that you are the person that you are, why it is that you are the leader that you are. And I think that listeners will have, will have developed a strong sense of the kinds of leaders that you are, ethical <laughs> and effective and, you know, um, making, making good things happen. So as you know, I'm really interested in this idea of significant learning. I was just wondering if I could ask you to, to maybe each pick out one or two sort of moments that have really shaped you as people. I think this is such a fascinating idea and it could be idea, something that was in your formal education. It could be something that's about you as a person outside of your, your work in schools or it could be within your, within your role as, as, as teachers and school leaders. Um, so Kate, I'll ask you first and then we'll come back to Elaine. Um, is there anything that springs out yeah, I think um, if I tr- kind of think about one of the like most key influences on myself as a as a teacher, myself as an educator, and 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 where that came from, um, for me it was the time I spent I spent teaching abroad. Um, I my husband is Australian, and we moved back to his home city in uh, 2009-ish and which was Brisbane Australia and on on our way out there I'd researched the schools and I looked at where I would really like to work and and this and the state at the time had this quite exciting kind of innovation in education the state premier was really keen on raising the quality of education it wasn't seen to be kind of keeping pace with other states in Australia and 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 internationally and they had identified these sort of strands of um, of the economy they wanted to kind of support and they wanted to bring that into education. And they wanted to do that by partnering schools with one of the major universities each. And they had these three schools, they had creative industries, they had the health sciences and they had science, math and technology. And each one of these schools was paired with one of the three major universities and they were using the International Baccalaureate curriculum. So I, they were very new at the time. I think they were... They're about a year old or partway through their first year when when we arrived and I um, and I wrote to them and I just said, you know, I'm really fascinated by your model. I'm really, really keen to work in in this in this school and sort of see what can be done with this partnership with a university and what that adds to a school, you know, kind of preventing this these islands of schools, but seeing the power of this collaborative approach to student learning. and I think for me, there was lots I expected, but there was so much that I didn't. And I think going to Australia, it's the same language that I spoke and there's, and you could maybe say there's lots of cultural similarities. Um, but I, fen- I spent probably the first six months of my teaching there just feeling total culture shock. Nothing was the same. Absolutely nothing was the same as my professional experience in London. And... Um, and I had to just do a huge amount of sifting through this difference and not trying to bring my own kind of preconceived ideas of what I know works in London or what I had experienced before or um, or those kind of parts of the system that were so familiar to me, but really be kind of critical and step back. And, and it allowed me to see the UK education system as a whole, and it gave me a completely different lens on education in this country. And once you once I could see it as a whole, because I'd stepped outside of it, I then felt I was able to kind of see the parts 
within it and evaluate them and kind of identify the strengths and weaknesses that I saw and start to kind of build my own um, vision of what I thought were the really essential parts of an education system. And yeah, so for me, if I think about Oakrest's single kind of greatest event in shaping me as a practitioner, it will be that those six months of just feeling like I was slightly drowning and being, and I'd, I'd walked in, I had been a middle leader and I had, I felt like I was moving along in my career and I, and I just, yeah, it was, it was the, the rug was pulled out from under my feet and it was quite an amazing experience. Mm, fascinating. So, so could you maybe just identify, I don't know how easy it would be to do, but was, is there one sort of, as you sifted through these differences, as you described, was there a sort of a, an overarching like, distinction that you saw between the, the Brisbane, what you were experiencing in Brisbane and the UK system? Yeah, I mean, the school was slightly different in that it followed the International Baccalaureate and the International Baccalaureate had some similarities, especially at the diploma programme. It had this external kind of standardised assessments, terminal kind of assessments. And, um, and you know, although, I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of the International Baccalaureate. I think the programme itself is is brilliant. I th- mm. I love the value it gives to community action and service and keeping that broader curriculum going for longer and you know that kind of philosophy or you know theory of knowledge being an integral part there's so much I loved about that on its own there were lots of similarities between the IB and the UK and and differences but the state system and all of the teachers that I was working with had come from the state system they were there was um there was there was very little international baccalaureate in the state I think these three schools were the only ones so we were all quite novice to that but they were bringing their experience from Queensland and Queensland didn't have these terminal standardized exams and in fact they it, there's lots of similarities I think of now in terms of CAGs I'm always kind of drawing back to that now they have this sort of um, core skills test which I think I hope I'm getting this right for people in Queensland but it's sort of benchmarks almost the school and then your your teachers grade you within their subjects and that's moderated against your kind of school's score and you come out with this overall position of each student and there's ranking involved and so on so I mean from coming from a UK system with with GCSEs and A-levels it was just wholly different and the strengths that the teachers had in curriculum design blew me away there was you know, there was so much autonomy given to a classroom teacher for designing appropriate curriculum and challenging curriculum and teachers were absolutely their experts in their subject knowledge and I learned so much from working alongside them and it was from the freedom that they had within their system um, so I think yeah those those were some of the things that really stood out to me and it was questioning well, how can this work and does this work and is it fair and what are the pitfalls and what are the strengths and what's lost and what's gained and what would you keep and what would you take away and uh, yeah I think it was all those questions that were just were just really useful questions to ask that you might not know to ask until you've stepped outside of your own framework. Mm, thank you. And there's that freedom and autonomy um, rearing its head again. Um, fascinating. Thank you. How about you, Elaine? Significant learning. Yeah, quite similar to Kate, actually. One of the things that, that was really influenced my view on education is, is trotting along to an international job fair in London and, and having an interview in a hotel room and coming out sort of 15 minutes later announcing to my friends that I was going to go and work in Shanghai and they were <laughs> really, really horrified. Um, but, but yeah, it totally 
influenced the way I saw education. I think like Kate, my first experience was realising what I don't know, because, you know, you pretty much think you know it all after three years of teaching. I certainly did. I thought I was the bee's knees. And I remember going to an international baccalaureate literature course and having to divide into certain groups in the room according to what book you'd read. And the, the books were all books in translation, because that's a particular part of um, the literature course. And I remember to my horror thinking I'd not actually read any of the books that, that were being suggested. Uh, so I did what every respectable person would do. And obviously I lied about it and pretended I had, not the first time <laughs> I've done that. But it but it really brought home for me just how much I don't know. And, and you know, I thought, you know, I'd done To Kill a Mockingbird and of Mice and Men and, and just how tiny that was in, in the pool of the the world of ideas. And, and I think, you know, I realised how entrenched I was in things like national curriculum levels you know I when I first went over I thought well how can you possibly grade work without national curriculum levels the idea seemed absolutely absurd to me it never occurred to me to think well that's actually just a framework <laughs> there's a whole world of ideas around assessment and it sounds absurd but but it but it really hadn't and then once you get through through that stage of realizing how little you know and, and then the kind of sort of unconfidence that brings at first you push through that and actually then it just becomes really liberating and then you're actually having these really real conversations with people about curriculum design and, and pulling on you know ideas from australia uh, america and and different countries and it you know that that was really really liberating and then i actually found it hard going back to the UK because you're leaving that system and then you're once again going into a system of, of high stakes accountability and, and once again I, I'm thinking crikey I'm now in a system where you know the standards of, of working my students exercise books has become everything and this is how I'm going to be judged as a teacher so I actually found fitting back into that system really hard but I think you know, having gone through that experience of, of really challenging my thinking, it, it was really valuable and really liberating. And yeah, it, it, I think it informs a lot of what I'm drawn to now in education. Mm, fascinating. Thank you. Uh, and Shanghai is an interesting place, isn't it? Kate and I were out there a couple of years ago helping a school to develop a learning to learn curriculum, um, which went amazingly well. Like we, we spoke to them um, this week and uh, they really took it on board. But I remember just feeling just blown away by Shanghai itself. It's such an incredible place. Oh, I loved Shanghai. Yeah, I mean, I loved the experience of walking home from school through a hutong and, and looking at the traditional ways of Chinese life and people dancing in the park at night. Um, I loved all of that stuff. And then, and then also that balance with the modernity of it. Um, it was such a fascinating place and, and fascinating to be there actually at a time when people were, were talking about um, China and, and Singapore being sort of the pinnacle of education that we should follow and finding that really ironic actually <laughs> I was in a, a British sort of international school where there, there were lots of Chinese parents desperate to put their children in a, a traditional British system and, and thinking about the, the, the irony behind that and, and why that is. Mm. 
Yes, yeah, it's definitely more complicated mm. than uh, than just that they they're nailing it over there, and we need to copy them. Yes, fascinating. Thank you very much. Okay, so let's get into the rethinking education bit. Um, we usually start with positives because it's important to start with in that way, right? Because we don't just want to be having a negative conversation. There's loads of good stuff that we see out there in the world. So, so I'll go to you first, Kate, and then Elaine again. What do you see in the educational world and this could be at the level of the classroom it could be at the level of policy or anywhere in between um what do you see that you really like the look of that you think that we should be doing more of or we that you would like to see more of when i um was thinking about this um i was really kind of drawn by something that happened in the pandemic and um as i was talking about earlier with camden steam um part of that program is working with Camden employers and employees and kind of linking their expertise and their knowledge and those opportunities to, to young people through, and usually through schools and, and kind of the school classroom. And um, during the pandemic, the response from employers and employees in Camden in terms of offering their support to Camden's young people was just overwhelming. And it really stood out to me about this kind of power of partnership around a school and um, you know, thinking beyond the kind of school boundary in terms of ed of education, we, there was a, a crowd funder set up really early on um, in the first lockdown to raise funds for students who needed laptops, and it almost immediately surpassed its goal, and it continued like that because people were just so motivated to support young people, and. Um, you know, some of our employer partners, such as Google or the Francis Crick, they designed virtual work experience opportunities from scratch to make sure that students continue to have really rich career education and guidance opportunities during the pandemic. And um, and they also supported by providing mentors for students in year 11, anyone who wanted to do an EPQ and be supported by a subject specific mentor once the GCSEs were were um, cancelled. I think really just anything, but they, people were just reaching out and saying, what can we do to help young people? And what could we do to support education during the pandemic? And for me, it just, you know, it was that global to local feeling, that idea of that that change coming from an area to, to you know, kind of wrap its arms around schools and say, you know, we're here to help, what can we do? And, and it was really, um, it felt a really um, uh, amazing, community and it's and it's persisted we've got um you know virtual work experience on offer again this year and you know other things have, have kind of sprung up that are going to carry on google have launched these career certificates you know ring fence for camden young people so that they can complete these sort of level four certificates in it and digital skills trying to kind of knowing that you know employability and employment opportunities have been really challenged during the pandemic so um I think it was looking outside of school boundaries to seeing what support there was and seeing how that can be brought into the classroom. Um, you, the STEAM leaders who are on the programme, you know, from across the, the Camden Primary Secretary and the FE College, they continue to take part in the hub programme throughout the pandemic. And they were just continue to be really passionate, enthusiastic about developing curriculum opportunities, despite the fact that we were all working these really challenging remote learning kind of situations. and um and this year we've been designing curriculum in collaboration with employer partners and that's not something i had ever done i i hadn't really seen uh 
necessarily that employers would bring curriculum design expertise or knowledge. I thought that would come from the teachers and employers would maybe bring this really specific knowledge. But actually, um, the partners that we we're working with had absolutely brilliant curriculum design thinking and the projects that have come out of it, I think, are really powerful. So I think, you know, out of all this adversity to, to have these kind of really exciting and positive opportunities um, has, yeah, has been really heartening. Mm, thank you. That's great. I've not been aware of any of that stuff before. Um, and I love the idea of virtual work experience opportunities. You know, that work experience is, you know, it's something that's hard enough to do, you know, these days when you're not in a pandemic, right? But that's one way in which young people have, have been quite impoverished, I think, by recent by recent developments where work experience was sort of taken out, often, often in the name of safeguarding or I can't remember but it was like it was got rid of under really spurious reasons and I just think that it's outrageous um and and that's fascinating to hear your experience because I suppose some people would be skeptical of that wouldn't they they'd be thinking that em employers being involved in in curriculum design that they would be sort of that it, this is a very instrumental reductive view of education that it's just preparation for the workplace but your experience of it can you maybe share an example of you were saying that the, the, the their curriculum design thinking was really innovative can you just give an example of what that looked like yeah so one of the projects that um, I'm aware of that was developed um, involved the Euston Master Plan, which you know is this really complex design process. It's going to take. I think. I think it's. Is it due to be finished? It's like 2030, and it involves three different huge stages, like the underground and the crossrail and high speed two, and then this the whole above station work. And there's a huge number of um, of companies involved in the in the process and. Um, and Lendlease and Arup in particular came on board and wanted to work with Camden teachers to design curriculum, sort of STEAM curriculum for Camden young people. And they sort of pitched the challenge of this idea of, you know, students being in, involved in designing um, the green space that's going to be part of this master plan and thinking about um, well, thinking about it from a sustainable design perspective. So, you know, how do we build sustainably for the environment? In, in, in how do we think about the ecology in our cities? How do we make sure that the green space is really inclusive and welcoming for everyone? Knowing what we know now about the pandemic and community space, how do we incorporate this thinking in like these major projects? And how do you make sure that a station like Euston, which is you know, um, a national station of importance still remains um, responsive and at the heart of Summers Town community where it sits in Camden. And how can you give young people a voice in what that looks like? And that's the kind of thinking and the premise behind the project. And then the challenge that we have as teachers and as, as leaders in that is how do you underpin that with academic rigor? How do you make sure that subject specific knowledge still remains at the heart of this and really rigorous and, and how do you join it up across different subjects to allow this interdisciplinary learning to take place but not at the consequence of really rigorous academic learning um, so that was one of the projects I, I'm really looking forward to it being taught in in Camden schools later this year yeah, it's great. And it's obviously very much on people's minds who are living in that area. When you first mentioned it, I thought you said Houston. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Why are they redesigning Houston? But it's Houston. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, how about you, Elaine? Uh, an example of something positive that you see out there in the world? 
Uh, mine's along the theme of silver linings from lockdown as well. Um, and it's around the renewed value on teacher development. And I, I see it as very en encouraging that, that we're more and more thinking of, of some of the, the problems that we, we face um, in, in classrooms. Um, in terms of the attainment gap um, and, and looking at addressing some of the difficulties that, that have arisen um, in lockdown as something that we can really address through teacher development and the renewed importance of it. And, and I think, you know, throughout lockdown, the idea of CPD really changed and I think it changed for the better. And I think so much, so many of us enjoyed that more flexible approach to CPD and being able to listen to different podcasts or such a wealth of, of things available um, that were given for free that I've still got a long list um, that, that I want to, to get free. But, but I think there was a, there was a mindset change in, in CPD for the better. And actually I think that does speak to some of the ideas of implementation science as well because it became a bit more tight but loose and, and people were given a bit more freedom to listen to things in their own time and, and to pursue things that were more bespoke to them and I think that can only be a healthy thing and I, and I think it can only be a healthy thing if we begin to look at school improvement through, through people improvement and we begin to look genuinely at, at you know, how we should really value things like the role of, of CPD and teacher development in schools. Yeah, I agree. There's been no shortage, has there, of um, pop-up conferences and the amount of things that are free is really good and people are thinking about how to spread it out so that it's, you know, falls in that sort of twilight area at sort of like four, five, six o'clock in the evening. Um, and there's, yes, like, like I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and I've seen there's been some headlines this week around, you know, at the Chartered College, they started to think um, a bit more carefully about the kinds of CPD that, that teachers are going to be having access to. Um, I agree. And obviously, this is all, you know, the work that we do at UCL and my work outside of UCL. It's all about that belief that, you know, that, that teacher development, it was that, that the, the quote from, from Lauren Stenhouse, he was like, in the end, it's teachers who will change the world of, of schooling and education, and they'll do so by understanding it. And stuff like, you know, podcasts and practitioner inquiry and implementation science are all ways in which we can understand this more deeply. And through that understanding and through having a little bit of autonomy and the ability to to make change at the point of need as you, as you see it. I think it's quite egalitarian as well, because the thing I like about it is, you, you know, it was once seen as, as the preserve of if you were lucky enough for your school to pay for you to go on on a course. But, but I think now it's a bit more equal than that. And, and I really like that. And, you know, if we think about uh, diversity and inclusion and, and the job we have to do to, to make our leadership team as representative as, as it should be, I think, you know, the free access of, of CPL is really important, particularly around leadership, because, it, you know, this way it means everyone has access to these ideas. You know, it's not just whether you, your school gives you the the time to go on the course you know you, you can access it when you want and I think that's quite liberating actually mm, thank you okay let's come on to challenges and solutions now sometimes we take these separately and sometimes we take them together because the solutions are sort of integral to the to the problems that we see so um let's go back to you Kate what do you see as being something that you really would like to see less of or that that's a problem or challenge that you think that we really need to get our heads around i think um 
I think one of the things that I, I've been looking at a lot recently is um, how well education at the minute is sort of serving all of our students um, and particularly if I think about post-16 and the advice and guidance we can give students looking at their post-16 options. I think, you know, it's such a rapidly changing landscape in terms of the qualifications that are out there. And I think um, I think there's still lots of questions left to be answered about the role, for example, of T-levels, you know, um, if needing a, a grade four in maths and English um, at GCSE means that these are really going to meet the, the needs of of, of some of our students at the minute aren't well served by their options and sort of really thinking about, you know, like we were talking about virtual work experience, you know, what, what will those 45 days of work placement look like and, and how are they going to be possible and will they be sort of fair and of the same quality for all students? Um, and, and I think that's where I'm thinking a lot at the minute. Um, and, you know, similarly with apprenticeships, and you know supporting students and families to um to look at these and critique whether they're the right option for them and identify the opportunities um and making sure that everyone has access um to some of the really exciting opportunities out there but making sure that all students have a really robust pathway available to them that's really clearly signposted um and can be signposted by schools Mm, yeah, thank you. Just for the benefit of listeners, in case people haven't heard of T-levels, could you maybe just explain briefly what they are? Well, they are um, a new qualification that are um, being brought in, they're being piloted and they're being increased in across the country over the next few years with funding available for schools and sort of colleges to look at adopting them. Um, I'm certainly not an expert on this area, but I would say that they are perhaps um, you know often in conversation with this idea of the forgotten third in education and making sure that there are technical and non-academic pathways um, that are you know equally robust and there for the long term in a way that I think that kind of that that area and that sector of education has often kind of undergone lots of change and uncertainty. Um, I think that this will be coupled with the defunding of BTECs qualifications, which is perhaps a qualification that schools have been running for a long time and are quite comfortable with and perhaps have served those students that may or may not have got that solid four or uh, maths or English GCSE in the past. And that's where perhaps the T-levels question still kind of sits for me is how, is how do they how do they fill that space in their current format yes i'm not entirely sure what the t stands for um whether it's technical education or something but it's but it's um it's, so these are new new courses that will follow gcse's they're equivalent to three a levels it's a two-year course and it includes um on the job experience with an industry placement of around 45 days and there are lots of I'll put I'll put a link to the, to the guidance uh, in the show notes. It's a fascinating development, and there's lots of different areas from accounting and farming, animal care, finance, um, education, digital uh, technology, and so on. So um, yes, it is a fascinating. So, but going back to your wider point, your concern is that the, there's a sort of a lack of 
a, a lack of options, maybe combined with a lack of clarity, would you say, around, you know, pr- providing young people with the, I mean, we didn't really have the, 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 the career service uh, wasn't really that great to begin with. Um, and then that was, that was defunded, wasn't it? So that that wasn't even available. So I think that there is a bit of a black hole with young people re- with regard to how their futures, when we get to the end of, of, of this schooling process, will pan out. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, in general, there is a lack of clarity around some of the pathway options outside of your traditional A-level pathway and onto university. And and I think, you know, there's real opportunity here for this to be a great response to that problem that, you know, it has been seen as a, as a pathway that's perhaps less secure or less kind of linked up with employability at the end or um, perhaps less valued. And some of that, I think, has come from a kind of more rapidly changing um, landscape in the qualifications in the technical pathway. So I think there's, you know, really exciting possibilities here, but I just, for me, still feel there's some questions that aren't answered. And I think, um, you know, particularly around the entry grades to get onto a T-level and who that will prevent from it being open to. And then what will they do if BTECs are defunded? What will those students who would have uh, gone on to those pathways, what will they do now? And I think 45 days of work placement, I think like you were saying, anyone who's tried to organise work experience in schools will know that is so difficult. And, um, you know, we talked about the merit of virtual work experience earlier on in the podcast. And I, I know I was speaking to someone last year and and they sort of were saying how they, they really hadn't enjoyed their work experience at school. And I sort of said, oh, what was it you had wanted to do? And they said, I thought I wanted to do an, be an accountant. And I said, oh, and what was your work experience? And they had worked in a, a really kind of uh, well-known foot um, uh, shoe shop. And I just thought, well, yeah, no, that's that's really not yeah, it's really not good enough, is it? And then I think if if you're trying to find placements for 200 children um, and, you, you know, you can't give them all uh, the, that opportunity of, of really powerful work experience and you've got to ask if it's if it's um, if it's working. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And the timing of work experience is so important as well. I remember going on a visit to to visit a student who was doing work experience and she also was working, she was in a clothes shop and she hated it because it's really boring, right? It's like really hard work, you're on your feet all day, you're basically just like lining up clothes hangers on on rails and she was really upset because she hadn't really worked very hard in her exams because she thought oh I'm just going to work in a shop and just going to have a social life and she hadn't really thought that much about the value of education and working in a shop for a week you know made her think oh man like I really really wish that I'd worked harder but this this happened you know quite close to the end of year 11 and she was really distressed that she was like oh no I want to I want to go back and change and this 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 experience had been a moment of significant learning for her but it sort of came too late um so these are these are important these are important questions i agree thank you for raising that it's not something that i've thought about recently but um it's a good point that you raise um how about you elaine what 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 would you say is the is a big challenge that you think we face currently um, I think teacher retention and well-being is, is still a huge challenge and I think it's one that, that's not going to go away anytime soon. Um, and it's something I've keenly been aware of in, in my work as, as a lead for, for ITT and NQT induction. And, and one of the things I, I think is most damaging to 
to new teachers is, is this sort of cult of the hero teacher and I, and I think the pressure that, that new teachers put on themselves and I think we've seen a subtle shift um, over the 18 years I, I've been a, a teacher in, in this idea that it's somehow a teacher's job to, to solve all the problems in society and of course I'm as passionate about social justice as, as the next person and about education being a lever for, for social justice but, but I think there's something very dangerous about selling this idea to, to, to new teachers that, that, you know, that they hold the responsibility for tra always transforming students' lives in their hands. I think it's very dangerous. And I, and I think you, you see that in the pressure that's put upon them from Twitter, you know, that if they haven't got all these amazing knowledge organisers and personalised name cards, and if they're not, you know, making beautiful summaries of the latest research, they're not doing the right thing by by their students. And, and I think if you add to that, maybe some of the pressure from, from different research movements that makes you think, well, if you're not doing this, then you, you clearly don't know enough about things. And I think teachers are quite uh, paralysed by it actually and I think sometimes they're quite afraid just to follow their own instincts in in the classroom and it comes back to this idea of agency um which which I think is so important for teachers and, and I think sometimes we stifle that by making them think that they have to be perfect all the time or, or that you know it's always so high stakes it's not healthy to, to go into your workplace and think things are always so high stakes and you can't you can't laugh at things and I remember speaking the moments of significant learning. I remember I was really shocked when I went on a course once and we, we were talking about what we wanted for outstanding teaching and I remember I had a post-it note to the table and I said enjoyment and it was literally like I'd, I'd said something preposterous and <laughs> you know everyone was saying well no it's not about enjoyment it's about the joy of the struggle and it's about this and no you know and everyone was trying to transform it into this sort of hero narrative you know well, right. you know you can't possibly want to enjoy yourself as a teacher and I think, <laughs> well of course you should like teaching should be about enjoyment there's nothing wrong with wanting your day to be about enjoying teaching your subject and enjoying making having relationships with young people and laughing when things go wrong and knowing you can go back to your classroom and fix it and you know I've seen culture slightly shift away from that and, and it worries me a bit because actually you are entitled to enjoy your job and we do want schools to be full of joy and happiness and, and I you know I, I do see that as, as a danger. Yeah, well, that's a fascinating point. And it's something that uh, that I was listening to Brené Brown recently. She was talking about vulnerability um, and about how you sort of, you have to be vulnerable in order to really experience joy. It's such a fascinating idea that to, to, that to that maybe that's why those teachers that you were with were having a sort of a defensive reaction to that because to experience joy, it's, it's almost like you, ha like you have to acknowledge that everything is okay and that you're on top of everything and that you that you're able to relax to the extent that you're able to experience joy and actually to put yourself in that position where where somebody seems to be having a good a good time maybe maybe they're concerned that other people will think you know that it will attract some sort of unwarranted or unwanted attention you know it's a, it's a, it's it's quite a big deal i think to to appreciate and to experience joy and to do so in a in a place where you're quite visible to others 
Yeah, I think so. I think one of the best pieces of advice I had when I was teaching was, you know, you just need to lower your shoulders and, and realise you've got 30-odd individual <laughs> students in front of you with their, their wonderful ways. But, you know, it sounds simple, but it, it's so much easier said than, than done, isn't it? And, and I think you're right. And Until you make yourself vulnerable, you can't improve either. And that's often why why teacher development is so difficult because before you even get to that point you have to create the climate where people feel safe to be vulnerable and you know with high stakes accountability we so often don't even create that climate where people feel safe to sort of be vulnerable admit their mistakes laugh about them you know be be confessional about things because that's that's how you learn and that was part of the enjoyment if you if you think about programs like teachers and and all that that sort of stuff if you look at it in the past it was about being confessional and it it was about the stories and and there's something in that there is a, a joy in that it's kind of like the joy of failure and laughing about it and being vulnerable and moving on and I, I you know I, I do think that's really important um and like you say the the earlier part of your point was about teacher retention and and recruitment but especially retention I think recruitment is one question and but retention is something else like there's a lot of ex-teachers in this country, um, I'm among them. Although I'm, I'm very much committed to 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 working in education for the rest of my life, and I'd very much like to go back to the classroom uh, in the future as well. But ha- holding on to teachers is is uh, a really really difficult thing to do. So let so let's move into the fixes, and then we'll wrap up this conversation. I know we've been going for a little while now. Um, so. Let's stay, let's stay on this one and then we'll come back to this wider question around options for young people as they move out into the world because these are, these, are these are difficult things to fix. Do you have any thoughts on what we can do about teacher retention, first of all? I would, I mean, I would maybe link it back to uh, implementation science a little bit and uh, around how we collect data around how teachers are, are progressing in schools because you know we kind of think well how successful are, are they being um in in terms of student outcomes but we, we also really need to be collecting data on their well-being quite systematically and regularly and i know that that sam sims has talked a lot about that and he's also talked quite recently about different types of work that influence well-being so collaboration um, and continual professional learning. People love being involved in in that type of work, and that helps well-being. So that's that's one way um, of thinking about it. And I, I also think one of the things that made me feel really sad once is because I collected some data on new teachers, and I asked the question, "Are you enjoying your job?" And uh, the data was so low on that, I found it really depressing because ostensibly it'd be like, oh, look, this is a success, you know, look at all these new teachers and and they're they're going into their work and, you know, they they were doing really well, you know, they were really resilient and you use those adjectives like, oh, they're really resilient, but, you know, it it came out really low for, are you enjoying your job? And, you know, maybe we should start collecting data like that because actually in terms of sustainability and in terms of people not leaving, after three years, six years, which is is a big problem, you know, enjoyment in your in your workplace is is really important. And so, yeah, I think collecting that data is important. I think 
things like exit interviews are, are really, really important. And I often think it's ironic that that information comes so late. <laughs> exactly. It's a bit late in the day, isn't it? Yeah. To, to be collected we, that data. If you actually did that kind of throughout the school, if you actually, you know, were collecting, like you said, soft data um, that, that really spoke to people's lived experiences, I think you could probably improve things that way. Hmm. Yeah, thank you. And and again, to go back to implementation science, the autonomy thing that we've mentioned a few times, we know that that makes people want to stay, to stay in the game and it makes them want to get into leadership because they can think, oh, I can be involved in making things better. And that's a lovely feeling, isn't it? It's one of the, the, the greatest things about being a school leader is that you feel like you can make a difference, you know, over and above, you know, teaching your lessons. Uh, that's a nice feeling. And, you know, and if you're in a school where you're supported to do that, then you're going to want to stick around and do more of it. And like you say, lower. I love that metaphor earlier that you used, Kate, lowering the ladder to other people and just like saying, come on up. You know, the water's lovely. Uh, get involved. Um, that's a that's a a powerful way I think that we could improve retention because uh, I don't think that it takes much you know it like it doesn't take much to make people feel really valued in their work um, and that's that's a big way that we could do it do you have anything to add to that Kate this is question of, of retention yeah I mean I was thinking when Elaine was talking about the kind of cult of hero teacher and and what it would feel like right now to be a new teacher in education and uh, seeing the research debates that's going on that to me feel even more really particularly polarized and in a way that I don't think is very helpful. I think um, schools are really large communities made up of many individuals and, you know, successful approaches are, are going to need to be kind of nuanced and flexible in order to support all members of that community. And the idea that there's this kind of dichotomy for all approaches um, feels like such an oversimplification of both the challenges and the solutions, you know, and I think it's likely that things are much messier than this. And I think it's really unhelpful to suggest that there are these simple answers to difficult problems. And if I was a new teacher coming into the profession, I don't think that would fear. I think that, you know, you wouldn't be held by that. You'd think that you were able to go out and solve these problems. And if you weren't, perhaps you weren't doing a good enough job. And I think we really have to embrace the complexity and let it sit. And, you know, that's part of that implementation science approach is is, is planning for long-term um, change that's that's takes into account the context of the institution. And and similarly, you know, you could you could just look at that as an implementation problem. We want to implement like a hundred percent retention, you know, for like as as close to that as we can, uh, for as long as we can, and you know, just think about how can we make that happen, you know, and use these tools to make that to make that vision of the future a reality, because um, there you know there are some schools and there's such a lot of of churn and like turnover and just the the loss of expertise, the loss of relationships that are built up over time. You know, it's really interesting as a school leader, isn't it, when you go and work in a new school and you find that actually you're not automatically respected by the kids, you know, that you're new to them and you need to you need to earn their respect all over again. And when people leave schools, you know, kids find that so traumatizing, don't they? If they're, they're their favorite teachers that they've come to really, really have a strong relationship with part company with the school. That's a quite can be quite a devastating loss. And, um, and really impacts on young people's learning and so on. So it's an important one, I think, to, to put in the, in the crosshairs. 
Okay, let's come back to this to this other question, which is also a thorny one of improving the sort of the we used to call it IAG, didn't we? Information, advice, and guidance around you know helping young people have a clearer idea about what the options are available to them when they leave school. What do you think we can do as teachers and school leaders, in given the absence of a sort of systematic nationwide approach to careers education? What can we do within schools? Do you think to to fix this problem? I think, um, you know, the Gatsby benchmarks is a really great place to start in terms of thinking about what, what would high quality career information and guidance look like. But I think from the work that I've done through in through schools from primary through to FE colleges, um, you know, it's so important that high quality career education begins, you know, at the early years that we know that preconceived ideas of careers and career aspirations is formed at you know as early as that and and so you're really chasing your tail if you you know if you get to year 11 and you realize your work experience hasn't set you up for what you hoped like you, you described James you know we need we need to make sure that really powerful career education is happening throughout the curriculum so that all students have access to it and that they have meaningful encounters that help them to make informed choices for their future um, and I, I would say, you know, it's also about schools looking beyond their boundaries and really making the full use of that, you know, the whole village to raise the child and, and what's on your doorstep and what and what support is there around you and and drawing on all of it and bringing it into your taught curriculum so that all students have access to it. Yes, thank you. Uh, and I'll put I'll put links to the Gatsby um, benchmarks in the in the show notes. Uh, something else that, that was related to this that we talked about in the first episode of this of this podcast with Debbie Kidd. And she was talking about making links with the local community a little, little bit like you were talking about with the Houston Station project, which is obviously, you know, in Camden. Um, like one of the one of the problematic ideas about the education system is that if you are successful, you need to leave home and go to university and move away or go to London, say, and there's like a sort of brain drain effect. And we need to have really positive narratives for young people about how you can remain a part of your local community and use your knowledge and skills and experience and expertise and what have you desires to improve lives you know in your local community this doesn't have to be this sort of this idea of social mobility which kind of sounds nice but actually when you look at it for a bit longer you realize it's quite a problematic idea so maybe making links with local employers as well seems like a pretty smart idea in the way that you were describing um elaine what are your thoughts on this um, likewise, I think aspiration is, is so important as something that underpins it all and thinking about how we can broaden students' worldview so that they're not really in, in that situation that, that you talked about, James, when you visited that girl on work experience where she suddenly realised that actually that's not what she wanted. And, and I think we need to, uh, you know, attack that with the same rigour as, as we attack the academic curriculum. Um, as well, which brings us back really to, to the purpose of education. Um, and I, I think beyond knowledge, the purpose is also in the experiences we provide students with and what we want those experiences to be, because they're, they're so important. And one of the things I was going to talk about in terms of my moments of significant learning was, was when I was on a course um, in Hong Kong, actually, and there was a professor of education called Yong Zhao, and he, he uh, do you know him? 
I've, uh, yeah, I've been talking about him recently. Him, yeah. yeah, he's brilliant. What works may hurt. Yeah, I I loved him. I found him so inspiring. But but he he presented a lot on on how obviously there's no connection between standardised test scores and entrepreneurship or well-being or growth mindset. And and you know one of the things he said that that I think was that really gave me chills actually was he talked about the American education system and how it produced entrepreneurs and, and the fact that it was literally because they just kind of leaked through the spaces. It wasn't that they had this great educational system. It's just that there was a tiny bit of space for creativity to emerge. And I just thought that was so fascinating. That was a real sort of moment of learning for me. And and again, it speaks back to this fact that we want to produce active learners with agency and autonomy over their own lives. And it strikes me that that example you gave of, of that girl in the clothes shop is, is probably someone that had maybe been quite quite passive and, and maybe not really thought about, you know, agency and being active and, and all the opportunities available to her. And I, and I think those things are really important. And I think, again, it, it's about thinking about the purpose of education and, and really thinking, giving those things as equal weight as, as we give for the academic curriculum, because they are as important I think yeah thank you I've been on a bit of a journey myself with with the, the whole idea of entrepreneurialism I worked at a school where we became a specialist school for entrepreneurialism and at the time I really recoiled from it and it just it just felt very businessy and it coincided with the, with the imposition of a new sort of um, school uniform where the kids were wearing you know essentially little gray suits and it just all felt very worky and businessy and it felt like a sort of quite a, a bleak vision of what education is um, and, you know, the uniform question aside, I've really come around to the idea of, of entrepreneurialism and about this idea of like, th like thinking of job creation, right? Like you don't have to just like think about, you know, leaving school as what job can I get? What apprenticeship can I get? How can I s slot into a pre-existing hole? You know, kids can, there's loads of examples of very young people working really creatively to create wealth, to create jobs, to cre generate ideas um, that make the world a better place. Um, and also that there's, like, there's the mindset that goes along with it. There's this fascinating book I read recently called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Have you come across this? Um, really interesting book um, about this guy who was, you know, his his dad, his biological dad was a, a guy like me. He was like an education PhD person who never particularly had any money. And his, and his friend's dad, who he comes to refer to as his rich dad, was an entrepreneur. And he sort of, he was educated by them both. And this guy taught him about how you know about mindsets you know so if you're brought up in a in a in a in a in a mindset of scarcity you're told things like we can't afford that whereas as somebody who's rich even if they don't have any money at that point in time somebody who's got a sort of a wealth creating mindset they think how can i afford that and he says things like you know like people who are poor and middle class work for money and people who are wealthy have money work for them and we see this all the time right with the very wealthy people often our politicians come from that class of people they've all got like hedge funds where you know the, the money is just generating more money and they're living off that and you know we're not teaching these ideas to young people from from poor from poor backgrounds um and i think that we should maybe think a lot more carefully about that and i know that it's quite a controversial idea some people are like oh you're just you know inculcating uh, capitalist mindsets and all that and it's a, a heated area to get into for sure but um i think that the more information that young people have at their fingertips you know how can that be a bad thing Anyway, so it sounds like we've just ended on, on a rant there. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, 
all that remains then thank you so much for your for your time i really appreciate you uh, taking time out of your easter holidays to, to, to talk with me about my favorite pet topic about implementation science um, what does the future hold for you just as a final as a final question as we're going into this summer term or beyond what's what are you looking forward to uh, in the near future um i think you know this has been a really difficult year for everyone and i think you know the opening and closing of schools um you know the change is really difficult so you know we're obviously hoping to, uh for a more stable kind of future year but i think um going back to that kind of balance and that seesaw that elaine was talking about the 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 purpose and the values that we want to have and we want to see in our schools and how do you balance that kind of academic rigor that knowledge rich kind of environment with those really important opportunities and that career information and guidance and all those other aspects of education that are going to be um, hugely valuable to our students and I think that's that's sort of that's a line that you tiptoe and you have to keep uh, looking and kind of you know asking if you've got the balance right and um, constantly asking those questions of your curriculum and of the time you spend in schools on each and every activity um, because I don't think it's a, ever going to be a finished product so I suppose that's where we will kind of continue to work really hard. Mm, thank you how about you Elaine? Uh, yeah I, I think likewise really getting back to the purpose of what we're doing um, why we're doing it harnessing all, all the kind of positive feelings from lockdown and, and that sense of collective efficacy in schools like you know that kind of blitz spirit I think that's a really nice thing um, to pick up on and, and taking advantage of all the opportunities for teacher development that there are out there now and, and thinking about how we can really build teachers that, that are empowered and, and have agency and enjoy their job. Yes, indeed. Well, I hope that you're able to enjoy the rest of the Easter holidays. The sun is shining. It's kind of chilly, but there's a little bit of sunshine at least. And the pubs are open, importantly, albeit in the gardens only. So I can see both of your arms waving in the air. This is obviously something that you intend to capitalise on in the coming days. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> I might do an implementation science project on that, how outdoor gardens can be enjoyed healthily by a large number of people. I like it. We'll collect data on, on the effects of, uh, of, of beer on enjoyment. And that would need to be quite rigorous, I think, that sample of data. Definitely a longitudinal study, that one. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much both. Um, I wish you a lovely rest of your day and the Easter holidays. Thanks, James. Thank you. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Time is a measure of change.